peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Clark claimed that his large stable of past and present girlfriends included a roommate of one of the strangler victims. Following his arrest, Clark began a relationship with another woman, as did his partner, Carol Bundy. The woman was Veronica Compton, the girlfriend of Kenneth Bianchi who was convicted of being a copycat strangler. Richard Ramirez, whose alleged night stalker killing spree began just weeks after that of Bobby Joe Long, arose from the very same cesspool that had spawned Henry Lee Lucas, Rafael Resendez Ramirez, and the Matamoros and Juarez death cults. Just before his arrival in Los Angeles, Ramirez paid a visit to San Francisco to receive inspiration from the high priest of that satanic sewer, Anton Lavi. Robin Gecht was born on November 30, 1953 at, appropriately enough, the Illinois Masonic Hospital. His parents never married and young Robin was raised primarily by his grandparents. At a fairly young age, Gecht was sent to a school for troubled youth. He was later sent by a judge to a live-in facility that likewise catered to delinquent youth. Still later, as a young teen, Robin formed a close relationship with a man named Thomas Farley, a known pedophile who lived in the same building as the Gecht family. During his teen years, Gecht was accused of molesting his own sister. Around that same time, he began living with Farley, an arrangement that apparently was of no great concern to Gecht's parents or grandparents. At one point, Robin even took to the road with Farley, journeying to the state of Florida for reasons unknown. Robin Geck married a woman named Rosemary McCaffrey and fathered three children by her. Rosemary has been described by Geck chronicler J. Slade Fletcher as bizarre-looking, with long black hair, Cleopatra eye makeup, long red fingernails, and a hard-eyed stare. At the urging of Robin, who enjoyed reading books on the torture practices of ancient cultures, she reportedly kept hatpins stuck through her breast. Like Rosemary, her brother Thomas was also thin and chalk-white with jet-black hair. He was later implicated by Robin Gett in the Ripper murders. Thomas, who denied any involvement in the killings, claimed that one of the accomplices who was later convicted of complicity was a lover of Robin's, and that another accomplice was a former lover. In addition to his boyfriends, Robin also reportedly maintained a large stable of girlfriends. Like others profiled in this book, Gecht reportedly had a steady stream of teenage boys and girls coming and going from his house, some of whom stayed there for varying periods of time. One of them, a 15-year-old girl, accused Robin of raping her at gunpoint, but the charges were later dropped. Robin apparently was not too picky about who, or what, he copulated with, on at least one occasion, he reportedly had sexual relations with his wife's parents' dog. Gecht has been described as a master manipulator who is adept at reading others. He is also said to be an accomplished hypnotist who has an uncanny knack for getting people, especially women, to do what he wants them to do. 
He has also been described as a sufferer of a multiple personality disorder who speaks in various voices, including those of a small child, a teenager, and a businessman. Experts, of course, have declared this a sham. Robin frequently visited an unidentified drugstore where he apparently was on close terms with the pharmacist. Associates of Getz have said that he could get whatever he wanted there, in whatever quantities he desired, he was therefore able to keep a large and steady supply of prescription pills of various kinds on hand. All of this, the fascination with hypnotism and the control of others, the fascination with torture, the associations with pedophilia, ready access to drugs, indications of a dissociative disorder, is by now familiar terrain. Two of Robin's convicted accomplices were brothers Andy and Tom Kokorlis. Along with their four siblings, the two boys had been raised by their father following the premature death of their mother. One of those siblings filed numerous complaints with a youth protection agency charging their father with sexual molestation. In one of those strange twists that are forever popping up in serial killer cases, Warren Wilkosh, who served as the lead investigator on the Ripper case, had been a friend of the Kokorlis family for a number of years. In April 1982, Robin Geck suddenly disappeared for several weeks, much as Richard Chase had done several years before. Upon his return, Gecht refused to explain the reason for his sudden disappearance or to discuss where he had gone. On May 6, just after he returned from his mysterious sojourn, an unidentified Chicago police officer responded to a call of a man with a gun. That man turned out to be Robin Gecht, who was arrested and charged with carrying a loaded weapon. Robin purportedly quickly established a rapport with the officer, despite the circumstances of their meeting. A few days later, the two met at the officer's house and Robin, a building contractor, carpenter, just as Gacy had been, began working for the officer. Robin's new friend on the force soon opened his home to the entire Gecht family, who essentially lived with him for a period of four months. During that time, Robin was allegedly directly complicit in a string of grisly murders. The first of these occurred just nine days after that fateful, and rather bizarre, meeting between Gecht and the officer. Lorraine Ann Borofsky disappeared on May 15, 1982. Borofsky shared an apartment with a man who told police investigators that she had not slept at home the night before she disappeared, even though it was quite obvious to the officers that she had. It has never been explained why the man lied to the officers, or why he was not considered a suspect after doing so. Lorraine had told her mother the day before she vanished that a big, giant man in a car had been following her. That was a description that would have fit Ed Kemper, but it was certainly not a description that fit the rather diminutive Robin Gecht. The owner of a nearby liquor store had seen a struggle at the side of a gray or dull silver, older model car. A suspect was identified who had driven such a car until just after the abduction, when he claimed to have sold it. The man was said to have an explosive temper and a fondness for knives and oriental throwing stars. He had been in and out of mental hospitals for a number of years, with release from his most recent confinement having come just the day before the abduction. His younger brother was already serving time for another abduction and murder. This was not the first abduction, murder that was later attributed to Robin and his crew. It would later be claimed that the killings actually began the year before, and that as many as 12 girls had fallen victim to the Rippers before Lorraine Borofsky. Police though were never able to produce more than one of the purported bodies, or to identify who any of the other missing victims might be. The first of them was said to be a Chicago area prostitute named Linda Sutton, whose nearly skeletal remains were found face down in a field on June 1, 1981. She had last been seen on May 24 at a family function in the company of a new boyfriend. 
It was claimed that she had been killed just three days before her remains were discovered, on about the 29th of May. The advanced decomposition of the body, however, suggested that she had actually died just after the time she was last seen. Her whereabouts between that day and the alleged day of her death were never accounted for. There is nothing to indicate that Linda Sutton's murder had any connection to those that occurred a year later. And there is no evidence to suggest that any other murders were committed by the Gecht crew between June 1981 and May 1982. In other words, there is nothing to suggest that the killings began before Robin returned from his mysterious sojourn and took up residence with a member of the Chicago Police Department. Indeed, the additional murders appear to have been a fabrication intended to draw attention away from the unusual circumstances surrounding the actual time that the killings began. On May 29, 1982, a woman named Shui Ma disappeared, her corpse surfaced shortly after that in one of Chicago's most exclusive suburbs. The next month a prostitute named Angel York was attacked and her left breast was brutally slashed, which was to become a distinguishing feature of the Ripper killings. It would later be revealed that the severed left breasts of the victims were utilized by the cult in rituals that involved cannibalism and necrophilia. This preoccupation with the left breast of victims is, perhaps significantly, shared by other serial killers. Included on that list are Richard Chase and the Boston Strangler, one of whose victims was found with 18 stab wounds forming a ritual pattern on her left breast. The body of prostitute Sandra Delaware was found on August 28, 1982, bearing the distinctive mutilation wounds of the Ripper crew. Delaware had been working for a pimp identified only as the minister, but had recently left his stable and had subsequently received death threats from him. Just over a week later, Rose Davis was savagely beaten, stabbed and strangled. Robert Ressler, one of the founding fathers of the science of profiling, just happened to be in the Chicago area when Davis's body was found, and he was promptly put to work creating a profile of her killer. Why this was necessary remains largely a mystery, since the police already had a prime suspect in the case. The suspect lived in the apartment building outside of which the crime took place, and he was seen by witnesses at the scene of the crime at the time that police estimated the girl had been killed. He was given a polygraph test that revealed that he had, at the very least, witnessed the murder. The police concluded, bizarrely enough, that the man had heard the assault in progress from inside his apartment and had gone outside to watch. He was cleared as a suspect. On October 5, a prostitute named Denise Gardner was found alive but bleeding profusely from severe mutilations. Her left breast had been completely removed and her right breast was nearly severed. She was rushed to Illinois Masonic Hospital where she told investigators that she had been forced to swallow some unidentified blue capsules. She also gave a detailed description of the van that was used to abduct her. The very next day, a drive-by shooting left one known drug dealer dead and one of his associates paralyzed. To investigators, it looked very much like a routine gang-related drug hit, which is no doubt exactly what it was. Nevertheless, it was credited to the Ripper crew. Police pulled over a van two weeks later that closely matched the description that had been given by Gardner of the vehicle that was used to abduct her. The driver of the van was a young man named Eddie Spritzer. Eddie led the officers to his boss, Robin Gett, who was the owner of the van. Eddie was then taken in and questioned at length. His interrogation quickly yielded the names of Gett and the Kokorlis brothers. Andy Kokorlis was then taken into custody, and Eddie and Andy were held in separate interrogation rooms for an extended period of time, forced to sleep on couches and endure frequent questioning. They soon confessed to as many as 18 murders. 
Both of the young men displayed a palpable fear of Robin Gett, who they said had an altar set up in his attic where he performed rituals. Police later found black and red crosses painted in that attic, but the altar had apparently been removed. Gett was arrested and formally charged with aggravated battery, deviant sexual assault, armed robbery and kidnapping, all in connection with the assault on Gardner. Eddie and Andy were indicted for murder, rape, kidnapping, armed violence, and deviant sexual assault. On October 25, Gett was released from custody after posting bail. Six days later, on Halloween, another woman was rushed to the hospital for emergency treatment after having her breasts slashed. Gett was formally charged with that attack on November 5, but the charges were later dropped on the request of an assistant state's attorney. Eleven days later, with all of the Rippers safely in custody, the mutilated body of another young prostitute was found under a bridge in exactly the same spot where Sandra Delaware's body had been dumped. Authorities deemed it just a bizarre coincidence. Eddie Spritzer and Andy Kokorlis, both teenagers who appeared to be the least culpable of the suspects, took the majority of the fall, both ultimately received death sentences. Eddie initially pled guilty to four counts of murder and one count of attempted murder and received four life sentences plus an additional 360 years. He was then indicted on additional charges and he went to trial, resulting in a death sentence. Andy's first trial, in February 1985, resulted in a life sentence after he was found guilty of murder. Two years later, in a second trial, he was again found guilty. On April 30, 1987, Walpurgis knocked, the presiding judge formally sentenced Andy Kokorlis to death by execution. The purported leader of the cult, Robin Gett, never faced murder charges, but he was charged with various lesser crimes. His first trial ended very quickly in a mistrial. At the second, he was convicted of attempted murder, rape, deviant sexual assault, aggravated battery and armed violence. He was given a 120-year sentence. Tommy Kokorlis was initially given a life sentence for his complicity in the crimes, but that sentence was later reversed. Facing trial again, he accepted a plea agreement that netted him a 70-year prison sentence no one else was ever charged in connection with the murders, although there was certainly no shortage of suspects, including the Chicago police officer whose home provided Gett with his base of operations. The name of another man came up repeatedly during the investigation, and that suspect failed a polygraph examination during which he was questioned directly about being present and participating in the killings. He was released, pending further investigation. Some of the witnesses in the case implicated others as well, either directly or indirectly. Some said that Gecht slaughtered animals during ceremonies performed in the woods. They also spoke of his fondness for guns and of his seemingly unlimited access to drugs. Some of them also spoke of orgies that were attended by Gecht's sister-in-law and her circle of friends. Many of the witnesses warned of a satanic fad sweeping through the local high school. Students, they said, were wearing pentagrams and carving 666 and inverted crosses into their desks. Secret ceremonies were reportedly being held and candles and witchcraft were hot topics of whispered conversations. Teachers told of finding circles of stones and the skeletal remains of cats and dogs in the wooded area behind the school. Such stories were largely ignored by the local media, which was uncharacteristically muted in its coverage of the case. Coincidentally or otherwise, the Ripper case was overshadowed by a much more high-profile series of deaths that were attributed to Tylenol packages that had been tampered with. The Tylenol cyanide case, which succeeded in ratcheting up the level of fear not just in Chicago, but across the country, was never solved. 
The lackadaisical coverage of the case was likely due to the fact that authorities were forced to acknowledge that the Ripper crew was indeed a satanic cult that killed as a group, much like the Manson family. Prosecutors in fact likened Geck's followers to Charlie's, who yearned to please their leader and killed on his command. The cast of characters involved in the Sunset Strip murders was a large and colorful one. Many of the key players in that cast reeked of covert military intelligence operations, including the alleged ringleader, Douglas Clark. Doug was born in 1948, the son of Navy Lieutenant Commander Franklin Clark. The Clark family moved frequently during Doug's early years, living for varying periods of time in Pennsylvania, Washington, California and Japan. When Doug was 11, the family relocated to the Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands. By that time, Franklin had allegedly retired from naval service to find work in the civilian sector. The family's new home just happened to be an interceptor pad for missiles fired from Vandenberg Air Force Base, but officially Franklin was now a civilian employee of the Transport Company of Texas. Following this stint in the Pacific, the Clark family returned to the home that they maintained in Berkeley, California, where young Douglas whiled away his time playing with the children of legendary Navy Admiral Chester Nimitz. The family next lived for a time in India, where Doug remembered living a life of luxury surrounded by numerous household servants. After that, Clark enrolled at École Internationale de Genève, alongside the offspring of royalty, celebrities and diplomats. The rest of the Clark family, meanwhile, moved on first to Venezuela and then to Australia. Doug's next stop was at the prestigious Culver Military Academy in Indiana. While there, he indulged his lifelong fascination with guns by joining a firearms club on campus. He also reportedly spent a considerable amount of time recording audio tapes and taking photographs of his sexual exploits, <coughs> which he reveled in sharing with others. After leaving Culver, Clark moved back in with his family, who by that time had resettled in Yosemite. He next embarked on a career in the Air Force, where he worked, strangely enough, in radio intelligence. Like many other future serial killers, he was discharged early, though honorably and with full benefits. Details of his discharge, alas, remain rather murky, some of the records are reportedly missing. In the early 1970s, he married and opened his own upholstery business. By 1976, the marriage had ended and Doug was working for the Department of Water and Powers Valley Generating Station. According to his work records, he once took two weeks off to recover from knife wounds of unspecified origin. His employment at the generating station was ultimately terminated. Strangely enough, on the day of his termination, the plant received a telephone call from the LAPD warning that Clark was headed their way armed with a shotgun. That turned out to be a false alarm. It was never explained why the LAPD made that unusual call. Clark was known to confide to friends his ultimate dream of owning a country home with a secret torture chamber where he could train and house sex slaves. He also liked to boast of being a contract assassin who had been performing assigned hits since his adolescent years. One of Clark's closest associates, John Robert Jack Murray, also claimed to be an assassin. Murray was a lounge singer who fancied himself Australia's answer to Tom Jones. He reportedly was known to carry a police badge and a 9mm handgun. He had served in Vietnam in a special forces unit of the Australian Army. He claimed that he had served, specifically, as an undercover assassin for the CIA, in other words, as a Phoenix operative. Like Clark, Murray found it exceptionally easy to attract women and he generally kept a large stable of girlfriends, some of whom he shared with Doug. 
Jack's wife, Jeanette, who was well aware of her husband's frequent indiscretions, was a former Marine and the daughter of a naval officer. Jeanette's father died at the age of 42, reportedly by his own hand. Before his death, he was a frequent abuser of his daughter. One of his beatings was severe enough to leave Jeanette with a dislocated shoulder and a concussion. Jack Murray later took over as her primary abuser. Carol Bundy was another of the key players in this sordid tale. Carol had worked for a brief time as a child actress, the highlight of which was an appearance in the classic film, Miracle on 34th Street. Carol had also suffered through a horrendously abusive childhood. Her sibling recalled watching Carol sitting emotionless in a dissociative state while their mother beat her unmercifully. After the beatings, she would just grin at her tormentor. After their mother died at a young age, when Carol was just 14, the two girls were temporarily expected to take their mother's place in their father's bed. Their father was remarried just months later, however, and promptly shipped the girls off to foster homes. At about that time, Carol made her first suicide attempt, she made at least two more attempts in later years. Carol first married at age 18, but it apparently was a brief union. Not long after that, her father was found swinging from a rope, his death was ruled a suicide. At around that same time, Carol met a man named Dick Geis, who was the editor of a bizarre and obscure fanzine and a writer of pornography. Geis was yet another possible player in this tale, he had inside knowledge of the murders, but was not necessarily complicit in them. Carol eventually moved into an apartment building that was managed by Jack Murray, and soon began an affair with Jack, and also with Doug Clark and with Jeanette's Murray's brother. Carol had two young sons living with her who suffered abuse at the hands of both Carol and Doug, and possibly Jack as well. Some reports held that both of Carol's boys, and an 11-year-old neighbor girl, were under Doug's control. The neighbor girl had been molested from a very young age by an unidentified family friend. She had endured such severe abuse that she reportedly had her own pediatric plastic surgeon to mend the damage from her frequent accidents. For Doug and Carol, she served as a model for child pornography photos. She also regularly rode along with Doug to assist him in selecting prostitutes, which was one of his favorite activities. The names of several of Doug and Jack's girlfriends are woven through this story as well. And Doug and Jack had no shortage of girlfriends, some of whom they shared. Jurors at Doug's trial were amazed at the level of control that he exerted over so many different women. Lydia Crouch was one of them. She had an 11-year-old boy and a 4-year-old girl who were likely molested by some of the adults in this story. Tammy Spangler was an off-and-on girlfriend of both Doug and Jack over a four-year period. She disappeared while Clark was awaiting trial. Bretta Joe, Joey, Lamphere was a particularly loyal girlfriend of Doug's. Her phone bill revealed that incriminating calls to witnesses had been placed from her home. Nancy Smith was yet another of Doug's girlfriends. She fled to Illinois the day after Jack's body was found without Jack's head attached to it. Jack Murray's head was never found. The possibility exists that it was not really Jack's body that turned up headless in Jack's van. And it almost certainly was not Carol Bundy, working alone, that stabbed the victim repeatedly and then chopped off his head. And Jack Murray was certainly more than just a victim in this tale, but that is how he was portrayed by the state. The murders began in June 1980. The first victims were Cindy Chandler and Gina Moreno, just 16 and 15 years old. Their bodies were discovered alongside the Ventura Freeway, in a dumping grounds previously used by Buono and Bianchi. Both girls had 25 caliber slugs in their heads. 
Both had been sexually violated and, according to accounts by law enforcement officials, photographed with a Polaroid camera after their deaths. Not long before their disappearances, they had attended a party with a Beverly Hills acquaintance, Mindy Cohen, and had apparently been staying at the home of an unnamed Hollywood producer. Mindy's boyfriend, an attorney, was the host of the party, which was reportedly attended by more than 100 people, many of them judges and lawyers, and many of them nubile young women. After leaving the party, the two girls were taken by Mindy to the home of Rod Stewart and Britt Eklund. It is unclear how long after this eventful evening they remained alive. Not long after their disappearances, a woman named Lori Briggs received a troubling phone call from a man who seemed to be attempting to get a physical description of her brother-in-law, Henry Briggs. Henry's business card was found on the body of one of the two dead girls. Days later, Mindy Cohen received an equally troubling phone call from a man claiming to be an LAPD detective. The police later said that the man had no connection to the department. Two days later, Cohen received a second call from the same man, this time claiming that he had seen her at the party. On the same day that Mindy received the first phone call, XC Wilson and Karen Jones were shot in the head with a 25 caliber automatic. Both of their bodies were found the next day, but it was several more days before Wilson's severed head was discovered, packed inside a treasure chest manufactured in Juarez, Mexico. Wilson and Jones had both arrived in L.A. just a week before, brought there from Little Rock, Arkansas by their pimp, Derek Albright. Albright had previously served time for murder. Tests conducted on the semen found in Wilson's throat revealed that it came from a type of secretor. Doug Clark had type O blood. One of the last places that Wilson was seen, on the day that she disappeared, was the Carney's restaurant on the Sunset Strip from where one of the Strangler victims had been abducted. Another alleged victim was a 17-year-old runaway named Marnette Comer, who had been working the streets since the age of 13. She had worked the streets of Sacramento during the time of the Richard Chase killings. She had recently confided to her sister her intention to leave her pimp, and detectives initially suspected that a nationwide organization of pimps was responsible for her death. Another attack attributed to Clark was the brutal stabbing of a prostitute named Charlene Anderman. She was stabbed 26 times but managed to survive the attack. Anderman originally identified another man as her assailant, in both a photo lineup and a live lineup. She also described the man as having a mustache and identified the car he was driving as a wood-paneled station wagon. Clark had neither a mustache nor access to a station wagon. Anderman seriously undermined her own credibility when she waffled over where the attack took place. First she placed it inside a motel room, and then later changed her mind and claimed that it had occurred in the vehicle. The killings ended after Carol Bundy allegedly placed an anonymous call to the police. Doug Clark was arrested and reportedly talked to detectives for over three hours without the benefit of having an attorney present. Cindy Chandler's home phone number was found in his wallet, a rather unusual find given that Chandler was allegedly a randomly chosen victim. Two guns were confiscated, but neighbor Teresa told investigators that that was just the tip of the iceberg, she had once seen an army bag stuffed full of guns. Doug was charged with multiple counts of murder, three counts of child molestation, one count of attempted murder for the Anderman attack, and one count of being an accessory after the fact in the killing of Jack Murray. While in jail awaiting trial, Clark had no fewer than four fiancés, one of whom was the so-called copycat strangler, Veronica Compton. The case against Clark was prosecuted by Robert Jorgensen, whose life had followed a rather interesting path. Jorgensen had at one time been an executive with General Electric.
In the mid-1960s, he decided to resign to attend law school at UC Berkeley. The former defense industry executive was suddenly reborn as a campus radical. He graduated in 1967, at the onset of the Summer of Love, campus activism was at an all-time high and covert operatives were lurking everywhere. Following his graduation, Jorgensen drifted south to Los Angeles and promptly began working for the district attorney's office. That was, needless to say, a rather odd career choice for an idealistic young radical. Once on the job, he became known as a hard-line right-winger who tended to associate only with young, attractive women. Carroll's appointed attorney was a former homicide detective. As Doug's counsel, the court appointed Maxwell Keith, who had previously represented Manson disciple Leslie Van Houten. Doug was not entirely pleased with the appointment and he repeatedly petitioned the court for permission to represent himself. His requests were denied, but he was allowed to essentially serve as co-counsel to Keith, who delivered one of the most pathetic closing arguments in legal history. His excuse, amazingly enough, was that he had left all his notes at home because he did not expect to have to argue that day. Clark seems to have fared somewhat better, veteran court watchers were said to be impressed with his performance. Clark's efforts were hampered in a number of ways, he was repeatedly denied contact with his own attorney, on at least one occasion, his cell was searched and his notes were seized, and on another occasion, he was brought into the courtroom manacled and gagged. And Clark likely didn't aid his cause much by hurling at the judge, in open court, such epithets as, sleazy cocksucker, gutless worm, Tijuana taxi driver, goddamned asshole, stinking faggot, and spineless bastard. Perhaps the most damage was done to Doug's case by Carol Bundy, who was called to the stand as a defense witness. Though Doug did not know it, Bundy was offered, and she accepted, an immunity deal immediately before she took the stand. The story she told was the one the state wanted to hear. It was a story loaded with discrepancies. Carol had already provided two different accounts of the crimes, the first in her anonymous phone call and the second in her sworn confession. The two accounts were markedly different. The one she recounted in court was not consistent with either of them. When the defense attempted to enter into evidence an audio tape of the initial phone call to illustrate that point, the judge disallowed the entry of the evidence. He claimed, quite remarkably, that allowing the tape to air would be too damaging to the defense's case. Carol also could not be challenged on her ever-changing story of the murder of Jack Murray, since the charges against Clark in that case had been quietly dropped after a private conference in the judge's chambers from which Doug was excluded. At one point during the trial, Prosecutor Jorgensen obtained privileged communications, which normally would result in a mistrial. Jorgensen assured the court that he had not read the communications, and he was taken at his word. Despite Maxwell Keith's botched closing argument and the clear bias shown by the court throughout the trial, the first jury vote revealed that two of the jurors were holding out for acquittal. After further votes, Doug was found guilty on all counts, including the charges in the Anderman case. Called to testify during the penalty phase of the trial, purportedly for the defense, although Doug and his entire family refused to cooperate with him, was none other than Dr. Donald Lundy. Dr. Lundy, as was his custom, assisted in the prosecution's efforts to impose a death sentence on Clark. Somewhat more helpful on the stand was Doug's brother, Walter, who had reportedly been cautioned by his mother not to reveal any family secrets in court. Three of the jurors initially voted for a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. All were soon swayed to condemn Clark to death. Six times. Considering that two of the jurors were not even convinced of Doug's guilt when deliberations first began, that was a rather remarkable turn of events. 
Carol Bundy never had her day in court. On the day her trial was scheduled to begin, she suddenly withdrew her, not guilty by reason of insanity, plea and entered guilty pleas to two counts of murder. She was given two 25 years to life terms. Two days later, her ex-husband was found dead, purportedly from a self-administered overdose. Doug appealed the court's decision and found himself squaring off against Buono prosecutor Michael Nash. Dr. Dorothy Lewis was retained as a consultant. When she came to visit Doug and asked him about childhood abuse in the Clark House, about those family secrets, he told her to get the fuck out the door. Doug proved no match for Nash, the initial verdict withstood the appeal. Dr. Lundy, meanwhile, surfaced on yet another case not long after he wrapped up his work on the Hillside Strangler and Sunset Strip cases. In 1985, he was called as an expert witness for the defense in a rather notorious case known as The Girl in the Box. The case involved a girl, Colleen Stamp, who was kidnapped in Northern California and held as a sex slave for seven years by a man named Cameron Hooker. During that time, Stan was frequently tortured and forced to live for months at a time in a box roughly the size of a coffin. At other times, she was forced to wear what was called a head box, which was a crudely made, but very effective, sensory deprivation device. When the case came to court, there was no question that the woman had been held in abhorrent conditions. Hooker had gone to the trouble of documenting his depravities on film, so there was no shortage of evidence. His home yielded the notorious box, along with an array of restraints and torture devices, and some literature suggesting that a ring existed that traded in sex slaves. It was not the open and shut case that it first appeared to be, however. Hooker's defense counsel argued that the living arrangements had been bizarre, but consensual. Evidence was presented that seemed, on the surface, to support that argument. Love letters written from victim to captor were entered into evidence. Most damaging of all, testimony revealed that Colleen had been allowed to visit with her family, unattended, four years into her captivity. Quite unexpectedly, she had first called, and then visited, her parents and siblings at the family home. She did not bother to explain her disappearance and four-year absence, and apparently her family did not press her on the matter. She visited for a day or two and then her abductor, captor, returned to pick her up. The Stan family apparently made little or no attempt to stop her from leaving. She was returned to the box for another three years. There is no question that she had the opportunity to physically escape from her tormentor. In fact, in the latter years of her captivity, she was allowed to work outside of her captor's home, and she never attempted to escape. Even when she did eventually break free of her psychic <coughs> she did not bother to report her ordeal to the police or to her family. She did not bother to report her ordeal to anyone but she did make numerous phone calls to her former captor. To explain all of that, prosecutors brought in a psychiatric witness who argued that the woman's period of imprisonment was not consensual, despite outward appearances, because Stan had been deprived of her ability to act of her own free will. She was, the expert explained to the jury, mind-controlled. To counter that argument, the defense brought in its own witness, Donald Lundy. Lundy argued that there was no such thing as mind control, and that the woman's actions demonstrated that she remained with her captor voluntarily. Lundy did not fare well on cross-examination. Surprisingly, the jury rejected Lundy's testimony and the rest of the defense case and convicted Cameron Hooker. That verdict signaled that all twelve jurors concluded that Colleen Stan was not in fact exercising her free will by choosing to remain as a captive sex slave. All 12 jurors, in other words, were convinced by the evidence presented in the courtroom that the victim was mind-controlled. 
One final note on the case of the girl in the box, the jury returned the guilty verdict against Hooker on, of all days, Halloween. In probably no other serial killer case on record, with the possible exception of the Boston Strangler case, has the wholesale corruption of the criminal justice system been more clearly on display than in the case of Bobby Joe Long. Bobby Joe was born on October 14, 1953 to parents Joe Long and Luella Lucas. Both the Long and the Lucas families had a long history of alcoholism and mental illness, and apparently of spawning serial killers as well. Luella Lucas could not remember much of her own troubled childhood. Her father had died when she was three, and she did not remember her mother at all. Luella and Joe first separated when Bobby was just eight months old, thus beginning a long series of breakups and reconciliations that included the pair remarrying on two occasions. When he was two and a half years old, Bobby's mother took him to live in Florida. Luella worked the bars there, as a prostitute according to Bobby, and she lived with her son in a series of seedy apartments and boarding houses. Several other members of the Lucas clan moved to South Florida as well, including Luella's mother, two sisters, a half-sister, and seven of Bobby's cousins. It is unclear whether one of those cousins was Henry Lee Lucas. The Lucas clan lived together in cramped quarters as a not-quite-happy family, which is generally given as the reason why Bobby shared his mother's bed until he reached the age of 13. Long would later reveal that he had powerful childhood memories of being locked in a closet by his cousins and screaming in vain to be let out. As a young man, Bobby received his requisite blooding by working as an attendant in a funeral home. He also worked at a variety of medical facilities, most frequently as an X-ray technician. In the late 1960s, early 1970s, Long began experimenting with LSD and reportedly became a heavy user of the drug. Bobby was first arrested in December 1970 on theft charges, but the charges were later dropped. He was again arrested just two months later, on unrelated charges, and was given probation without being formally convicted. He was next accused of rape, though it is unclear if he was ever formally charged with the crime. On September 19, 1972, Long was sworn into the Army and sent to Fort Benning, home of the School of the Americas, otherwise known as the School of the Assassins, a notorious training facility for Central and South American death squads. Bobby reportedly spent a considerable amount of time in an Army hospital, ostensibly recovering from a motorcycle accident. He later said that this accident and its aftermath changed him completely. He was ultimately, inevitably perhaps, released early from military service. His family claimed that he was given a medical discharge, but the records are sketchy. He was though given a 40% disability rating and was entitled to full military benefits. Beginning around 1975, at the same time that his cousin was beginning his career as a serial killer, Bobby allegedly embarked on a career as a serial rapist. An indeterminate number of women in three different Florida counties were accosted by a man with a knife, bound, and then violently raped. Their homes were then looted by the attacker dubbed the classified ad rapist and the ad man rapist. No physical evidence linked Bobby to any of these attacks and only one of the numerous witnesses later claimed to be able to identify him. These rapes continued long after the string of killings that Long was also held accountable for began in yet another county. Strangely though, none of the rape victims were ever killed. Despite what the serial killer profilers tell us, Bobby was supposedly able to simultaneously function as a serial rapist in three counties and as a serial killer in a fourth. On August 21, 1981, Long was accused by his girlfriend of rape and battery, though the charge was later reduced to simple battery. 
Bobby opted to represent himself and to waive his right to a jury trial, choosing instead to place his fate in the hands of the judge. He was found guilty and sentenced to a 30-day jail term and six months probation. But then, in a most remarkable turn of events, Long wrote an informal letter to the sentencing judge requesting a new trial, and the judge inexplicably accepted the letter as a valid legal motion for a new trial and released Bobby to await his new hearing. Before the year was out, Long had been charged with sending obscene photos and letters and making obscene telephone calls to the 12-year-old daughter of a Tampa physician. He entered a plea of no contest to the charges and was fined $65.50 and put on probation for six months. While continuing to await his new trial on the battery charges, Bobby Joe embarked on an extended cross-country trek. He traveled first to West Virginia and then on to Southern California, where he stayed for at least six months. At around that same time, cousin Henry was living in Hemet, California. While in California, Long purportedly signed up for a $9,000 commercial diving class. How the chronically broke and underemployed Long was able to finance the diving lessons, as well as the trip itself, has never been explained, nor has his sudden interest in diving, which was apparently of no interest to him before or after his trip to California. Those with whom Long socialized during his time in California later recalled that he frequently went out by himself and refused to talk about where he had been. These witnesses also described Bobby as being prone to headaches, wild mood swings, and the use of racist terms. After leaving California, Long slowly made his way back to Florida, again traveling by way of West Virginia. He was arrested there and given a hearing before a judge who just happened to be, conveniently enough for Bobby, a friend of the Long family. He was acquitted of the more serious charge of assault, but convicted of destroying private property. He paid $68 in court costs and fines and continued on his way. In early 1984, Long stood trial once again for the battery of his former girlfriend. This time he was acquitted, despite the fact that damaging testimony was offered by several credible witnesses, including one who had witnessed the beating that Bobby had administered to the girl. Just after that trial concluded, the killings began. First to disappear was Ann Wick, on March 28, 1984. She had just recently arrived in the Tampa area. Five months earlier, in October 1983, one of her boyfriends and his brother had beaten their father to death. Wick had been complicit in the crime. She had quickly left town after that without telling anyone where she was going. Once in Florida, she moved in with a police officer, where she remained until her disappearance. When this officer was interviewed by police investigators, he was reportedly almost completely incoherent. Bobby Long later agreed to unofficially take the rap for the killing of Wick, provided that he was not officially charged. The officer and various others were thereby absolved of any involvement in the crime. Just over a week later, Long was arrested after attempting to abduct a woman at gunpoint. The woman had thwarted the abduction by intentionally crashing her classic Jaguar. Three months later, Bobby was sentenced to six months probation and ordered to pay $1,500 in restitution, needless to say, a preposterously light sentence. Meanwhile, the body count continued to mount. On May 13, the body of Lana Long was discovered, raped, strangled and posed for maximum shock value. This was the first body to be discovered. Wick's body did not surface for several more months. Judging by the police response, you would have thought it was the first body ever to be discovered in Tampa, Florida. Half the police force quickly descended on the crime scene, including much of the department's top brass, who normally were not known to congregate at crime scenes. 
For no readily apparent reason, a decision was made at the scene to send all evidence directly to FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia by means of a special courier system. From that point on, the FBI played a central role in building a purported fiber evidence case that became the key component of the state's case against Long. As previously stated, fiber evidence is by far the easiest type of forensics evidence to plant, that fact would become glaringly obvious as the Bobby Joe Long story unfolded. Tellingly, the fiber evidence purportedly being assembled was kept secret and was never mentioned by police or the media throughout the course of the investigation. That is most likely due to the fact that the fiber case did not in fact exist prior to the arrest of Bobby Joe Long as a suspect. Lana Long, who was of Asian descent and not related to Bobby Joe, had recently come to Tampa from Los Angeles in the company of her boyfriend. Both Lana and her boyfriend had been associated with the owners of several L.A. nightclubs, including Eddie Nash, at whose former club Lana had danced. An associate of Lana's had also recently left Los Angeles for Tampa, purportedly to pursue a film role, although you would normally expect that someone pursuing a career in film would head for L.A. Of course, this may not have been a typical film role. There was much talk among Tampa's exotic dancers at the time of unidentified men recruiting women for nude modeling jobs and then using them in the production of snuff films. In the last hours of her life, Long was reportedly desperately trying to raise money to get out of town. Needless to say, she did not make it. After she vanished, her boyfriend did not bother to report her disappearance until he was forced to do so by friends, who threatened to report the disappearance themselves if he did not. Next to be discovered was Michelle Denise Sims, found two weeks after Lana Long's remains were discovered. Michelle had also just made the journey from Southern California to Tampa, and she had spoken to friends of doing some modeling work. Like Lana, she was known to be a heavy drug user. She was also the product of a seriously dysfunctional family. Michelle's mother had died very young, and her father had later been imprisoned for holding Michelle and her babysitter at gunpoint. Elizabeth Loudenbach was next to go missing on June 8, 1984. She was found just over two weeks later. Loudenbach had apparently been in fear for her life and had, just two days before her disappearance, left a note affixing blame should anything happen to her. Her efforts were in vain. Her note included the name of a man who claimed that he was an informant for both the police and the DIA. Also provided was a description of his vehicle. On other occasions, Elizabeth had reportedly expressed fear of another man as well. Both of these men failed polygraph examinations. Nevertheless, both were cleared as suspects and Bobby Joe was ultimately blamed for Elizabeth's death. Following Loudenbach's disappearance, there was a three-month lull in the killings, which ended on September 7 with the disappearance of Vicki Elliott. Her body would lie exposed to the elements for over two months before being discovered. By that time, her head was reduced to little more than a skull with some strands of hair still attached. Nevertheless, police made the remarkable claim that fibers from Bobby Joe's car, defying all odds, still clung to those strands of hair. The FBI's own experts, it should be noted, acknowledge that fiber evidence is extremely fragile and will be lost or destroyed very quickly with exposure to the elements, particularly the effects of wind and rain. As an FBI bulletin once put it, fibers which have been transferred are very transient in nature. By October, the killings were coming in rapid succession and a task force had been officially assembled. Joining that task force were the County Sheriff's Office, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Tampa Police Department, and the FBI's BSU. The profiler assigned to the case, Stan Jacobson, had been a member of the team that engineered the illegal incursion into Panama to capture Manuel Noriega. 
Chanel Devin Williams, the next victim, was unlike the others in two significant ways. She was killed by a single gunshot wound to the neck, rather than being bound and strangled, and she was the only black victim. Friends said that she had been forced into prostitution and was planning to leave town to escape from her pimp. Her body was found on October 7th. Kimberly Kyle Hop's mummified and headless corpse was found on Halloween Day alongside a road that had been bulldozed just the day before. The circumstances of the discovery suggested that her remains had just been dumped there, though she had been missing since October 4th and had obviously been dead for quite some time. Just before she disappeared, she had had a fight with her pimp boyfriend Donald Jones, who waited three days before bothering to report her disappearance. Karen Din's friend was abducted, raped and strangled on October 13th and found just 12 hours later. Like most of the victims, she was a prostitute and a drug addict. Unlike the others, however, she was from a very wealthy family. Karen had been arrested on four separate occasions for forging prescriptions for the drug Dilaudid, known on the street as hospital heroin. Virginia Lee Johnson vanished on October 14th, just one day after Din's friend. Virginia was, not surprisingly, a prostitute with alcohol, cocaine and heroin addictions. Just 18 years old, she had already compiled a lengthy rap sheet. Her sister, one year her junior, had been murdered the year before. Both of the girls had reportedly been alcoholics since the ages of 9 and 10. Both had been physically and sexually abused by their stepfather. Despite the fact that Johnson's corpse remained undiscovered for nearly a month, during which time scavenging animals scattered her nearly skeletal remains over a large area, some of those tenacious carpet fibers from Long's car allegedly clung to her scalp. Kim Marie Swan's nude and badly beaten body was discovered on November 12. The large framed girl had been lifted over a guardrail and rolled down a hill. She was a prostitute who had been working for a man known as Fat George. Kim likely began her career in prostitution at an early age. She reportedly began hanging out in bars at the age of 13. She had recently reported two disturbances at her apartment, both involving men trying to break down her front door. Like some of the other victims, her absence was not reported for several days. Her clothes, found near her body, allegedly contained yet more of those notorious carpet fibers. Lisa McVeigh was the next to vanish, but, unlike the others, Lisa reappeared just 26 hours later. Lisa had a very interesting history, to put it mildly. Only 17 years old, she had dropped out of school and was living with a man who posed as her father. That man, Mars Rhodes, a wheelchair-bound double amputee, held her hostage in his home as his captive sex slave. McVeigh's grandmother, a former girlfriend of Rhodes, was aware of, and apparently approved of, her granddaughter's living arrangements. Lisa was snatched off the streets of Tampa after leaving work at about 2.30 a.m. Her grandmother placed a telephone call to Mars just a half hour later. She later claimed that she had just called to see how he was doing, at 3 o'clock in the morning. Throughout the time that Lisa was held captive, she was raped repeatedly, though this was little different, it should be noted, from the life that she led with Rhodes. And even before she moved in with Rhodes, she had established a long history of being victimized. Incredibly enough, relative to her past experience <coughs> with men, her abductor and rapist, Bobby Joe Long, did not seem so bad. Not only did he free her after just one day, but he kept a spotlessly clean house and he went out of his way to make sure that she was as comfortable as possible under the circumstances, or so she later told the police. 
She also provided a description of her abductor that seemed to be deliberately tailored to throw the police off course. If Bobby was indeed the guilty party, she described him as being 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighing 150 pounds, when in fact Long was 6 feet tall and weighed 180 pounds. Lisa's surrogate father, Marsh Rhodes, was later arrested for sexual battery. Long was also arrested. At the time of his arrest, the very first thing that one of the detectives on the scene did was to cut a swatch of carpet from the floor of Long's car, purportedly to compare with the fiber evidence that had been secretly compiled by the FBI. It is questionable though whether that fiber evidence even existed prior to the time that that swatch was cut. The initial interrogation of Long lasted for five and a half hours, even though Bobby Joe requested early on that he be provided the services of an attorney. That interrogation allegedly yielded a confession. The media wasted no time in trying the suspect in the court of public opinion. By the time of his first public appearance, at his presentment hearing, he had already been convicted in that most important of forums. Bobby was presented to the public as though he posed a clear and present danger, even while in custody, he was brought out with his ankles manacled and his handcuffed wrists shackled to a body belt. He was formally charged with nine counts of kidnapping, eight counts of sexual battery, and eight counts of first-degree murder. A grand jury was convened within 24 hours, and murder and rape indictments were returned on November 28. Long was moved from his isolation cell to a special holding cell in the infirmary where he was prevented from having contact with other inmates or with prison personnel. Interestingly, it was reported in the local press that a group who claimed to be investigators from Tampa had been tailing Long for several months before his arrest, from Long before he was ever considered a suspect. Members of this group apparently questioned witnesses in the case before police arrived to do so. Though locally reported, the matter was never investigated. Who these men were remains a mystery. On April 15, 1985, the first of Bobby Joe Long's many trials began. He was first tried not for the murders, but for the series of rapes in one of the adjoining counties. Within two days, the trial was over and Bobby Joe had been convicted of armed robbery, armed burglary, kidnapping, and sexual battery. He was sentenced to 693 years in prison, a sentence far in excess of the state of Florida's sentencing guidelines. Just days later, on April 22, jury selection began in Dade County for Long's first murder trial, for the killing of Virginia Johnson. As would become a pattern throughout his trials, the defense readily conceded Bobby's guilt but maintained that he was unable to control his actions. Presentation of evidence began on April 25. That presentation consisted almost entirely of the fiber evidence that was purportedly recovered from the hair of a skeleton. No defense case of any kind was presented, not a single witness was called to rebut the flimsy case presented by the state. As would also become a pattern throughout his trials, Bobby's parents and ex-wife were barred from the proceedings with the dubious claim that they were potential witnesses. The detectives that had worked on the case were, needless to say, potential witnesses as well, but they were not prevented from sitting in on the trial. Long is not the only serial killer to have had his family and friends barred from the courtroom. That is a tactic that is used frequently to bias juries by leading them to believe that the defendant is such a loathsome creature that his own family does not care enough to attend the trial. By April 26, the jury was deliberating over Long's fate. They returned in just 44 minutes with a guilty verdict. By the next day the penalty phase of the trial was over and the jury once again retired to deliberate. They were back in just 35 minutes with a recommendation that Long be executed. On May 3, the judge formally sentenced Bobby to death by electrocution. 
Long was back in court again the next month to face rape charges in another county. He saved the court the trouble of staging another trial and pled guilty, thereby earning six life sentences, again far in excess of state guidelines. By that time Long had received one death sentence, six life sentences, and an additional 693-year sentence, he had spent perhaps ten days in court for the three trials combined. The state was just getting warmed up. On September 24, defense and prosecuting attorneys met to discuss the remaining eight murder counts and various other outstanding charges. Long inexplicably agreed to enter guilty pleas to all the outstanding murder, kidnapping and sexual assault charges. He was sentenced to 26 life sentences, with the provision that the district attorney could still seek an additional death sentence if he should choose to. Bobby gained absolutely nothing from this plea agreement. Even if it had guaranteed him that he would not receive another death sentence, it was far from an attractive offer. It is difficult to believe that Long would have taken the deal if he was acting of his own free will. Not surprisingly, Long was brought to trial once again, as the state attempted to pile on one more death sentence. Guilt was not an issue at the trial, since the defendant had already entered a guilty plea to the charge. The jury was only to consider the appropriate sentence. Putting on a rather unorthodox defense, Long's attorney focused on the fact that Bobby was a confessed serial killer, going so far as to credit Long with one more murder than had previously been publicly credited to him. This defense was supposedly intended to demonstrate that Long was insane and unable to control his actions. After little more than an hour's deliberations, Bobby Joe received another death sentence. In November 1987, the Florida Supreme Court ordered a new trial in the Johnson case, based on the fact that the confession introduced at Long's previous trial had resulted from an illegal interrogation. The confession was tossed out and disallowed for all future trials. In June 1988, the High Court tossed aside Long's second death sentence as well. Not to be deterred, prosecutors ordered a new trial for Johnson's murder. This time around, they used what they claimed was another confession, a two-minute, heavily edited clip from a 90-minute television interview that Long had given. The defense presented a few psychiatric witnesses and then rested without challenging any of the elements of the state's case. The jury deliberated just 62 minutes before finding Long guilty once again. Thirty more minutes of deliberations resulted in a 9-3 vote in favor of a death sentence, which the judge obligingly affirmed. In June 1989, a new sentencing hearing for the Sims case was convened. Three days after it began, the jury returned yet again with a recommendation for death, which the judge not only affirmed but also decided to supplement with two additional life sentences. Bobby had by then accumulated two death sentences, 34 life sentences, and an additional 693 years. His saga was not quite over yet. In October 1992, the Florida State Supreme Court once again overturned the decision in the Johnson case. All three key elements of the state's case, the edited videotape, the testimony of Lisa McVeigh, and the evidence of other murders, were deemed to have been inadmissible as evidence. The higher court's decision specifically noted the fact that only four hours of testimony had been presented on the Johnson murder, while three entire days had been spent admitting prejudicial evidence of other murders that Long was not being tried for. On January 31, 1994, a jury was seated to once again hear the case against Bobby Long in the matter of the death of Virginia Johnson. By the end of the week, he had been found guilty and sentenced to death. With the exception of the highly questionable fiber evidence, no physical evidence ever linked Bobby Joe to any of the murders. No witnesses could tie Long to any of the dead girls or to any of the crime scenes. 
there were quite obvious signs that Bobby had been set up, including the dubious fiber case, the unexplained and unidentified surveillance team, and the indications that the bizarre abduction of Lisa McVeigh was facilitated by others in order to provide the state with an eyewitness. There also were signs that Bobby Joe was involved in any number of heinous crimes. He had a collection of photographs of rapes in progress, and authorities believed that additional photos, perhaps even more violent and disturbing, were in the hands of others. At a deposition hearing, a lead investigator on the case told the court, it's believed that Mr. Long photographed his victims as he killed them and he has those photographs. Though such images were never produced, Bobby's former wife told police of finding a collection of photos of nude women, some of whom she described as having a very blank look in their eyes. As in so many other cases discussed thus far, there were also signs that Long did not act alone if he was in fact involved in the killings. Semen evidence, for instance, was recovered from at least two of the victims, and yet there is no indication that that semen was ever matched to Bobby Joe. As in other cases, evidence that conflicted with the official story was consistently ignored by both the prosecution and the defense, and by most media outlets as well. In a letter that Bobby wrote during his incarceration, he referred to others who may have been involved, I talked, but never mentioned my kinky friends. They're all gone, her back to California, him back to Miami, standing by Long's side throughout a portion of his legal odyssey, allegedly serving as his advocate, was defense counsel Ellis Rubin, the very same Florida attorney who represented the Collier brothers and received honorable mention in their dubious conspiracy tone vote scam. Perhaps nowhere have the trappings of Satanism in a string of serial killings been more readily apparent than in the case of Richard, the Night Stalker, Ramirez. Indeed, Ramirez's embrace of Satanism was so obvious that the mainstream media was unable to deny it. Instead, Ramirez was labeled as a self-styled Satanist, as though he had come up with the ideas that he espoused entirely on his own. Nothing could be further from the truth. Richard was born in 1960 to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. Julian endured repeated beatings by both his father and his grandfather before growing up to become a policeman in, of all places, Juarez, Mexico. He eventually left the Juarez force and relocated the family to El Paso, Texas, but he continued to visit several times a week with his police friends in Juarez. Julian reportedly had an explosive temper that sometimes manifested itself in acts of self-mutilation that his children bore witness to. He once repeatedly bashed his head against a wall until blood ran down his face. On another occasion, he took a hammer to his own head. There were also hints that he may have been sexually abusive towards his wife and children. And there were other adults in the Ramirez children's world who most certainly were abusive. In El Paso, Julian's two older sons were enrolled in a special class at the local junior high school for kids who were slow learners. The teacher of that special class, Frank McMahon, was later identified as a molester of dozens of kids. Shortly after the Ramirez kids were enrolled in his class, McMahon began visiting them at home and taking them away for visits to his own home. Julian and Mercedes appear to not have had a problem with the teacher's peculiar interest in their children. Another pedophile, with whom Richard was known to have had occasional contact, lived just a block away from the Ramirez family. It is said that the Ramirez family was very private and that they tended to keep to themselves for the most part. Richard was known to spend a considerable amount of his time alone, he could amuse himself for hours acting out various roles in the fantasy world that he frequently inhabited. Later, as an adult, he had a tendency to space out. Richard had an older cousin named Mike who became something of a mentor to the young boy. 
1965, Mike was sent to Vietnam where he appears to have functioned as a Phoenix assassin. After two tours of duty and 29 confirmed kills, he returned to Hira. His souvenirs of the war included eight shrunken human heads that he had made himself and a large collection of Polaroid photos that graphically depicted rape, torture, mutilation and murder. These he gleefully shared with young Richard while regaling him with tales of his barbaric treatment of the Vietnamese people. Mike also taught young Richard techniques of jungle warfare and survival, just as he had been taught before he had been sent off to kill. On May 4, 1973, Mike casually shot his wife in the face from point-blank range, killing her instantly in full view of his 13-year-old protege. The dead woman's mother, strangely enough, was said to be a skilled practitioner of black magic. Following the shooting, Richard reportedly returned to the crime scene with his father and located the slug that had passed through the victim's head. They took it with them as a keepsake and also gathered some things that Mike had asked them to retrieve for him. How they were able to enter what should have been a secure crime scene to find evidence that the police should have already found remains a mystery. Cousin Mike was judged not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a state mental hospital. Richard, meanwhile, ventured off to Los Angeles, where his older brother Ruben taught him the finer points of the burglary trade. After that, he headed back to El Paso, where he got a job at a Holiday Inn. While working there, Richard bound and attempted to rape a woman in her room. The attack was thwarted when the woman's husband unexpectedly returned to the room and promptly gave Ramirez a beating. All charges against the 15-year-old were dropped. In late 1977, Cousin Mike was released after serving just four and a half years for the cold-blooded killing of his wife. He promptly resumed his role as mentor to his young disciple. Not long after that, in February 1978, Richard once again left El Paso destined for Los Angeles. This time though, he traveled by way of San Francisco, where he was granted a rare one-on-one -on -one meeting with High Priest Anton Lavi, and where he also attended a Church of Satan ritual. Ramirez, who was a young man frequently slept in a local cemetery, was reportedly a big fan of Lavi's Satanic Bible. He also read and admired the writings of the Marquis de Sade, whose exploits will be covered elsewhere in this book. Once in Los Angeles, Ramirez lived a shadowy existence, he reportedly preferred to live and hang out in the seedier neighborhoods of the city, and he frequently employed the services of prostitutes. He had at least one run-in with the police, not long before the killings began. On that occasion, he was arrested for stealing a car and leading five LAPD cruisers on a high-speed chase. Strangely though, there is no indication that any charges were filed against him. The murders attributed to Richard Ramirez officially began on June 27, 1984. However, there is nothing that indicates that the stabbing death of Jenny Vincow in Glassell Park that night had anything to do with the killings that came later. Vincow's murder took place nearly a year before the others, which were all committed in fairly rapid succession. Ramirez's defense team later implied that Vincow's own sons had killed her, or had had her killed, for her money. One of the sons was an unemployed pharmacist who was known to have hit his mother in the past. He was described by investigators as evasive and difficult to interview, and he refused to take a polygraph exam. When Ramirez was ultimately brought to trial for Vincow's murder, Michael Tynan, the presiding judge, refused to allow any questions pertaining to Vincow's financial affairs. It was not until March 17, 1985 that the stalker struck again. Two young women, Maria Hernandez and Dale Okazaki, were shot in their Rosemead home with a 22 caliber weapon, 
Okazaki did not survive the attack, but Hernandez did, and she was the first to provide a description of the man who would soon become Los Angeles' most feared serial killer. She said that her attacker was about 5 feet 10 inches tall, thin, and had black hair and dark, scary eyes. He had walked up to her quite casually, assumed a military firing stance, pointed the gun at her without saying a word, and then fired a single shot. What she described was the actions of a cold and mechanical professional assassin. Strangely, however, the gunman did not take aim for her head, as he did in almost all subsequent attacks. Maria first tentatively identified a man named Paul Samuels, a military veteran who was known to dress all in black and who had a habit of following underage girls. Samuels matched the physical description given by Hernandez and he was observed by police following two young women and trying to coax them into his car. The suspect was arrested, and the arresting officers discovered a gun in his possession, but it was of a different caliber than the one used in the Rosemead shooting. Samuels was let go, and Ramirez later took the rap, although Maria was unable to identify him in court. In yet another of those bizarre coincidences that are forever surrounding serial killer cases, Maria Hernandez just happened to be very closely connected to Gil Carrillo, who was one of the two lead detectives on the Night Stalker Task Force. Carrillo's mother was Maria's godmother, and Maria's mother was a good friend of Carrillo's sister. Carrillo was assisted in running the task force by our old friend Frank Salerno, who also led the Hillside Strangler Task Force. On the very same night that Hernandez and Okazaki were shot, Veronica Yu was shot twice with a 22 caliber weapon in Monterey Park. She did not survive her wounds. Two witnesses who claimed to have been near the scene of the crime offered similar descriptions of the gunman, descriptions that clearly did not fit Richard Ramirez. One described the assailant as possibly Asian, 5 feet 6 inches to 5 feet 8 inches tall, with wavy hair. The other saw a man who was 5 feet 7 inches to 5 feet 8 inches tall, 145 to 150 pounds, with a light complexion and long, shaggy hair, and possibly with slanted eyes. Both eyewitnesses told police at the scene that they did not get a good enough look at the suspect to be able to identify him. In court, one of the two claimed that he had heard arguing and that he had seen the shooting and heard the shots. None of that was consistent with his earlier statements, nor was his account of how the shooting occurred consistent with the forensics evidence. Ten days after the shooting deaths of Yu and Okazaki, Vincent and Maxine Zazara were shot in the head as they lay sleeping in their Whittier home. Both died from the 22 caliber bullet wounds. The hopelessly deformed slugs could not be matched to the slugs recovered from previous victims, as would be the case throughout the investigation. Following the shootings, the Zazara home was frantically ransacked and Maxine was hideously mutilated. Her eyes were gouged out and an inverted cross was carved into her left breast. A search of the crime scene revealed that Maxine had a 45 caliber handgun in her purse. That search also uncovered a fingerprint at the point of entry that had not been left by either of the Zazaras or by Ramirez. Peter Zazara, a son of the slain couple, told at least two officers that the killings were a drug-related mob hit. Nevertheless, all evidence and testimony pertaining to drug trafficking and organized crime was later stricken from the pre-trial record, and no questions were allowed at trial about Vincent Zazara's prison time, the guns found in the house, or the family's ties to organized crime. The next stalker attack, like the Zazara murders, looked very much like a professional contract killing. William Doyle was shot and killed with a 22 caliber slug to the head as he lay sleeping in his Montebello home on May 14th. His wife, Lillian, was raped and left in thumbcuffs, but she was not killed. 
Just as in the Whittier attack, the Doi home was ransacked. Among the missing items was Bill Doi's Masonic ring. A 9mm handgun was found in Bill's nightstand, and several other guns were found strategically placed around the house, as though the Doi had reason to fear for their lives. As at the Zazara home, an avia shoeprint was allegedly found outside of the house. Along with it was a combat boot print that was purportedly left by an officer at the scene. At both crime scenes, the fire department was, curiously, the first to respond. Lillian Doy was the second living witness to provide a description of the suspect. Working with her daughter, she filled out a crime scene report that described an assailant other than Richard Ramirez. Just over two weeks later, Mabel Bell and Nettie Long, both in their 80s, were viciously attacked. The crime bore little, if any, resemblance to the previous killings. Rather than being summarily executed, the victims were tortured with an electrical cord and then brutally bludgeoned with a hammer. Pentagrams were drawn on the wall and on one of the victims. The home in which the pair were attacked was isolated, accessible only by way of a difficult-to-navigate drive up a long and winding route. It was not a house that a random killer would have stumbled upon. To get there, one had to know where one was going. Purportedly tying Richard to the crime was an avia shoeprint, allegedly left on a clock, but a human hair found at the scene had been left by someone else. The next attack occurred at the home of Carol Kyle in Burbank. Kyle was raped and sodomized and her home was ransacked, but she was left very much alive. As in the Zazara and Doi cases, the fire department was the first to respond. Working with investigators, Kyle created a composite sketch that looked nothing like the one created earlier by Maria Hernandez, which had somewhat resembled Ramirez. Carol described her assailant as a very good-looking, light-skinned Mexican with an unknown accent who engaged her in a 20-minute conversation. She later helped create a second composite that looked more like Ramirez. The Night Stalker next purportedly attempted to break into the home of an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy, just a few blocks from the Carrillo family home and a half mile from the Zazara home. The break-in was aborted, but not before the perpetrator had left an avia shoeprint in the ground below a window. He then reportedly tried to abduct a girl in Eagle Rock, but failed in that endeavor as well. None of the previous victims, it will be recalled, had been abducted, and there were no further abduction attempts. Just after the failed abduction, the suspect was stopped by LAPD officer John Stavros for running a red light. While Stavros was writing the man a ticket, descriptions of the would-be kidnapper and his car were broadcast over the officer's radio. Although he allegedly had both the man and the car right in front of him, the officer failed to make the connection. The suspect supposedly then drew a pentagram on the car before fleeing on foot. The car was impounded and then largely forgotten. No attempt was made to search the vehicle for fingerprints, although the suspect would surely have had to leave some. On June 27, Patty Elaine Higgins was brutally beaten and nearly beheaded in her Arcadia home. The attack on Higgins was initially credited to Ramirez, until serological tests demonstrated conclusively that someone else had committed the crime. The charges against Richard were quietly dropped. The defense later attempted to introduce the Higgins case in court, but that attempt was thwarted by Judge Tynan, who quickly prompted prosecutors to object to the introduction of the evidence. The prosecution team complied and Tynan then sustained what was essentially his own objection. Among the details that had emerged from the investigation of the murder was that a pathologist from the medical examiner's office had used an ATM directly across the street from the crime scene just before or just after the crime had been committed. The next attack occurred on July 2nd, in the Arcadia home of Mary Louise Cannon. 
she was beaten with a vase while sleeping and her home was ransacked. Cannon's killer apparently cut himself when the vase broke from the force of the blows. Blood found on the murder weapon did not come from either Richard or the victim. A light brown hair was found in the bed where Mary was killed and a fingerprint was recovered from the scene. Neither had been left by Ramirez. What he did allegedly leave behind were two avia shoe prints on the carpet. Neither could be discerned by jurors either on the carpet swatches that were submitted as evidence or in photos that were taken at the crime scene. Not to be deterred, the prosecution team presented a tissue containing the shoe print that they rather preposterously claimed had been found on the floor of Cannon's home. The next attack was on Whitney Bennett, a teenager who was asleep in her family's home in Sierra Madre on July 5, 1985, when an intruder beat her about the head with a tire iron so severely that 478 stitches were required to close her wounds, and yet she miraculously survived. The rest of the family was home sleeping as well at the time of the attack, they were all left alone and the house was not ransacked. A complete avia shoe print was supposedly found stamped in blood under the covers of the bed, although it initially had not been seen by police on the scene. A beer bottle of unknown origin that was found in the house yielded a fingerprint. More prints were found near the point of entry that the assailant had used. None of these prints were left by Ramirez, nor were the bloodstains found on the bed sash. On July 7, Joyce Lucille Nelson and Sophie Dickman were attacked in separate incidents in their respective Monterey Park homes. Nelson was beaten to death and her home was ransacked. Avia shoe prints were claimed to be everywhere, including on both the front and rear patios and stomped into the victim's face. Brown hairs and fingerprints recovered from the scene were not, alas, left by Richard. Dickman's house was also searched, but she was not killed. She claimed that the intruder had attempted to rape her before leaving her handcuffed to her bed, but he was unable to achieve an erection. Evidence, however, indicated otherwise. Semen was recovered from her body and she showed evidence of tearing from violent penetration. Her description of her attacker did not fit Richard Ramirez. She recalled him being 5 feet 8 inches tall and dressed like a hiker or mountain climber, and she specified that he was not Latino, Oriental or Black. She also noted that he wore dark canvas shoes, not the notorious avias. Ramirez was considerably taller than the assailant described, and he was quite obviously Latino. He also, according to law enforcement claims, always committed his crimes while clad entirely in black. Interestingly, Sophie Dickman lived right across the street from a female sheriff, S. Deputy, who had worked the Doi crime scene. The deputy's husband, also a deputy, had recently been murdered. He had been a good friend of Gil Carrillo's. On July 20th, Max and Layla Nighting were butchered in their Glendale home. The crime scene was a veritable bloodbath. Both had been shot multiple times with a 22 and viscously hacked with a machete. Blood was splattered in all directions, indicating that the attack came from a number of different angles. That fact strongly suggested multiple assailants. The bodies of the Nightings were autopsied by Dr. Erwin Golden, who was later discredited during the O.J. Simpson trial, much to the embarrassment of the prosecutors on that case. Hairs found on both the nightstand and atop the pillows did not come from Ramirez. On the very same night as the attack on the Nightings, Chainarong Covenant was killed instantly with a 25 caliber shot to the head. His wife Somkid was raped, sodomized and left tied up in their Sun Valley home, which was ransacked. On the day of the attack, Stomkid told her sister-in-law that her husband's killer was a black man with curly black hair. The by now obligatory avia shoe prints were found in the hallway and on the rear patio. 
Just over two weeks later, Virginia and Chris Peterson were both shot in the head with a 25 caliber automatic. Amazingly, both survived the attack. There were no avia shoe prints found and their Northridge home was not ransacked. Just days later, Sakina and Elias Abawath were attacked in their Diamond Bar home. Elias was killed with a single 25 caliber round to the head. It was claimed that the killer was also armed with a 38 caliber handgun and an Uzi. Sakina was raped and sodomized and the house was thoroughly searched, as was the car in their garage. As at so many of the other crime scenes, the killer appeared to be looking for something. As with the Bell and Long home, the Abawath home was in a neighborhood that was difficult to navigate. Some elements of the description given by Sakina fit Ramirez, but others clearly did not, such as the dirty blonde hair, the lack of an accent, and the boots. The requisite brown hairs and unidentified fingerprints were found at the scene, as was an African-American pubic hair. On the day of the Abawath killing, Frank Salerno called in the FBI's fabled behavioral sciences unit. By the end of the month, Richard Ramirez was in custody, charged with an array of crimes. Before the arrest of Ramirez, Peter and Barbara Pan were both shot in the head in their San Francisco home. The house was ransacked and a pentagram was drawn on the wall. The double murder was blamed on L.A.'s Night Stalker, who reportedly revisited the Bay Area on several occasions. Some investigators have blamed Ramirez for at least four unsolved murders in the area, along with a rape and ten burglaries. San Francisco, alas, has more than its share of unsolved homicides. The final Night Stalker attack came on August 17, at the home of Bill Carnes and Carol Smith in Mission Vieja. Carnes took three shots to the head, another witness was left alive, and the house was ransacked. So ended the alleged killing spree of the notorious Night Stalker. Ramirez was captured by a group of irate citizens after his face was plastered on television screens and newspapers all across the city. The hastily assembled posse gave the suspect a fairly severe beating. That beating likely saved his life. An LA Times reporter working the case has said that an explicit order was given to police, we don't want a trial for this guy. In other words, Ramirez was wanted dead, not alive. He was, nevertheless, turned over to police very much alive. He was taken by the LAPD to their Hollenbeck station, although the arresting officer was an L.A. Sheriff's deputy and the arrest was made in the Sheriff's jurisdiction, not the LAPD's. The police wasted no time in getting Ramirez into a lineup, a lineup that was fraudulent by any reasonable interpretation. Richard's face was staring out from every TV screen and every newsstand, hopelessly compromising any identification. He had a wound on the back of his head from the well-publicized beating he received, and the bandages covering that wound were clearly visible. The various witnesses were, incredibly enough, allowed to converse and compare notes. Richard was standing in the second position in the lineup, and at least two officers in the room held up two fingers, signaling to the witnesses the proper choice. That was later denied in court, but it can be clearly seen on videotape and in still photos. Jurors never saw those images. After the lineup, Ramirez was transferred to the county jail and placed in the hospital ward, where he was kept in solitary confinement. He began complaining of headaches and claimed that he was being poisoned. As legal counsel, he chose Daniel and Arturo Hernandez, who had, between the two of them, just five years' experience practicing law, neither had ever tried a murder case. The judge assigned public defender Ray Clark to assist the pair. Among Richard's visitors in jail, once he was allowed to have visitors, were Zena Lavi and the earless Nicholas Schreck. 
Zena told Richard that her father and the church sent their blessings and were praying for him. She also informed him that he was being made an honorary member of the Church of Satan. Occupying the cell next to Richard, for a short time, was actor Sean Penn. Penn's wife at the time, singer Madonna, reportedly tried to arrange a meeting with Ramirez. Ramirez was tried on 14 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 15 counts of burglary, 5 counts of robbery, 4 counts of rape, 3 counts of forced oral copulation, and 4 counts of sodomy. Prosecuting the case was Phil Halpin, who had served as co-counsel on the Manson prosecution. Virtually every decision in the preliminary phase of the trial went against the defendant. For example, an early motion for a change of venue, necessary because Ramirez had already been tried and convicted by the local press, was summarily denied. On one occasion, Ramirez was dragged from the courtroom and beaten by bailiffs. The Ramirez family, not surprisingly, was banned from the courtroom, although detectives working the case attended regularly. Richard's defense attorneys had to fight for disclosure throughout the trial. Prosecutors were consistently allowed to stall on handing over evidence. Perhaps the most prominent feature of Richard's trial was the steady stream of prosecution objections, the overwhelming majority of which were sustained. Another salient feature was the spectacle of Ramirez being kept shackled like an animal throughout the trial, while the media continued to demonize him and the non-sequestered jury soaked it all in. The Los Angeles Times did more than its share to prejudice the jury. Before the trial had begun, the newspaper reported that jailers had purportedly overheard a plan by Ramirez to shoot the prosecutor, although he obviously had no access to a firearm. In response, metal detectors were prominently displayed outside the courtroom. On the day the trial began, the Times ran a story in which it was claimed that Ramirez had bragged in jail of being a super criminal responsible for 20 murders. A sheriff's deputy quoted Ramirez as having said, I love all that blood. A large portion of the prosecution's physical evidence consisted of the avia shoe prints and what were said to be latex glove prints, but all that that evidence proved, even if the prints were in fact found at the crime scenes, was that whoever committed the murders wore shoes and gloves. The state did have one ace up its sleeve. On May 9, 1985, the home of Clara Hadzel in Monrovia had purportedly been burglarized by Ramirez, who allegedly left highly incriminating evidence at the scene. Though Richard was never charged with the alleged crime, the judge readily admitted the evidence offered by prosecutors, even though, as previously noted, he disallowed evidence from another uncharged crime that would have aided the defense's case. The officer called to the Hadzel crime scene, Tom Wright, claimed that he had discovered, in the sink below the window through which entry had been gained, an avia shoe print. Right alongside that alleged shoe print was a palm print and fingerprints. Luckily, Officer Wright, in a preposterously unlikely scenario, happened to have what must have been the most fully stocked LAPD squad car that the department had to offer. Without calling in evidence technicians, the officer claimed that he single-handedly lifted the various prints, utilizing a fingerprint kit that he just happened to have with him. He also just happened to have the extra-long lifting tape that was required to preserve the oversized shoe print. Wright also claimed that he made plaster casts of additional prints that he discovered in the ground outside the window, and that he then took photographs of all of this evidence at the scene. The elderly owner of the house, conveniently enough, had passed away, so there was no one to dispute the officer's account. This rather obviously manufactured evidence was the only way in which the state was able to tie the infamous avia shoes to Richard Ramirez. The shoes themselves were never found, nor was any receipt for the shoes ever recovered, and no witnesses were produced who ever saw Ramirez wearing the shoes. 
In fact, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that Ramirez ever owned or wore a pair of Avia shoes. In order to believe Officer Wright's account, we have to accept that Richard Ramirez, who managed to avoid leaving a single fingerprint at the scenes of any of the crimes for which he was charged, inexplicably left pristine palm and fingerprints at the Hadzel home, and left them right alongside his trademark Avia shoe prints. And he did all that at a crime scene where no witnesses and no evidence could be produced showing that a crime had even been committed there. To account for the fact that detectives were unable to produce any fingerprints from any of the real crime scenes, the state argued that the wily killer had worn latex gloves throughout his crime spree. And yet, at the very same time, the state argued that no gloves had been worn at this one particular crime scene. That rather obvious contradiction in the prosecution's case was never explained. Other than what was recovered from Hadzel's sink, the only other fingerprint evidence that was presented were prints lifted from items in Richard's car and from items in a bag of his that was recovered from a locker at the local Greyhound station. All that that evidence proved was that Richard left his fingerprints on items of his own personal property. The defense team did manage to offer into evidence testimony that tended to clear Richard of involvement in at least some of the murders. Ramirez, father, for instance, testified that Richard had been in El Paso at the time that two of the attacks occurred. Though some questioned the father's credibility, two other witnesses confirmed his account. One of them even attempted to introduce into evidence a Polaroid photo taken of Richard in El Paso. The witness informed the court that she had personally witnessed the taking of the photo, but the judge refused to allow it entered into evidence. One of the most bizarre of the sideshows surrounding the lengthy trial involved Richard's devoted girlfriend, Doreen, and one of his surviving victims, Samkid Kovanuk. Doreen sat outside the courtroom and babysat Samkid's five-year-old daughter while Samkid testified. Kovanuk apparently had no problem in trusting the care of her child to the girlfriend of the man who had allegedly raped her and killed her husband. And Doreen had no qualms with providing a service that allowed a witness to enter the courtroom for the express purpose of offering incriminating testimony against her boyfriend. The circus-like atmosphere of the trial continued after the jury began deliberations. Two jurors had to be replaced, one within a week of beginning deliberations, after having sat through a nearly year-long trial. One of the two, Phyllis Singletary, was murdered in a brutal, Night Stalker-style attack. She was purportedly killed by her boyfriend for reasons unconnected to her jury service. The boyfriend, conveniently enough, allegedly killed himself before police could get to him. One of the two replacement jurors, seated without protest, had a family history of violent crime victimization. Both of her brothers had been murdered. Ramirez was ultimately found guilty over 40 separate counts. During the sentencing phase of the trial, his defenders opted not to call a single witness. The jurors bestowed 19 death sentences upon him, even though a few of them later said that they thought the defendant had been railroaded. Before his capture, Ramirez had talked of plans to buy a house and set up a torture room in the basement. He planned to film his exploits and sell the tapes. He knew, he told others, that there was a market for such things. He also said that the idea of having sex slaves appealed to him. While these goals remain but depraved dreams for Douglas Clark and Richard Ramirez, in the next chapter we will meet some men who attempted to make those dreams a reality, with varying degrees of success. Chapter 16, The Collectors Jeffrey Dahmer thought he was the devil. Jeffrey thought he was so evil that he was equal to the devil, attorney Gerald Boyle. Leonard Lake was a collector. He started collecting in the San Francisco area as early as July 1984. Bob Berdella was also a collector. 
He started collecting in Kansas City, Missouri in July 1984. Gary Heidnick was another collector. He did not start collecting in Philadelphia until November 1986, unless you count his first failed attempt in 1978. Jeffrey Dahmer was probably the best known of the collectors. He started collecting in Milwaukee in 1990, around the same time that Herb Baumeister started collecting in Indianapolis. In 1963, John Fowles published The Collector, a disturbing tale of a man obsessed with control. A butterfly collector in the beginning of the book, he soon enough reveals his desire to collect and control women. His first young victim was named Miranda, which would later become the code name Leonard Lake used for his master plan. The Collector was apparently a very influential work. Leonard had a copy of it prominently placed in his concrete bunker, along with Carl von Clausewitz's Principles of War. Bob Berdella cited the movie of the same name as having an enormous impact on his life. In November 1961, Gary Heidnick joined the U.S. Army and requested that he be trained as a military policeman. The Army though opted to send him to Fort Sam Houston near San Antonio, Texas for training as a medic. When that training was completed, he was sent to an army hospital in West Germany to work as an orderly. That did not work out too well, however, especially after the army began experimenting on him with powerful hallucinogenic drugs, as his records would later reveal. He was sent back to a military hospital here in the States and then released early with an honorable discharge. He later became a collector. In January 1979, Jeffrey Dahmer joined the U.S. Army and requested that he be trained as a military policeman. The Army though opted to send him to Fort Sam Houston near San Antonio, Texas for training as a medic. When that training was completed, he was sent to an Army hospital in West Germany to work as an orderly. That did not work out too well, however, and Jeffrey was released early with an honorable discharge. He later became a collector. Now that seems a little odd. And while we are on the subject of Jeffrey Dahmer, his hometown of Bath, Ohio was just 15 miles from Bob Verdella's hometown of Cuyahoga Falls. That seems a little odd as well. Collectors generally have much in common. Their primary concern is with control, which they attempt to gain by torturing their victims into submission. Along the way, they tend to take numerous photos and shoot a number of home videos. Some of these they keep for themselves, and some they sell to others. Collectors also like to keep various body parts lying around the house and they generally keep their freezers well stocked with unmarked meat. Some collectors are prone to race war diatribes and have grand plans to keep large stables of female sex slaves as breeders. These collectors are not unlike Charles Manson, except that their techniques are somewhat cruder. Leonard Lake and Gary Heidnick are examples that type of collector. Other collectors are not concerned with acquiring breeders, they prefer to collect young men and boys. These collectors are not unlike John Wayne Gacy. Bob Berdella, Jeffrey Dahmer and Herb Baumeister all fit into that category. Here are the stories of the collectors and the havoc they wreaked in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Leonard Lake was born in San Francisco and raised primarily by a grandmother who reportedly was a strict disciplinarian. His father was said to be abusive and cold. His mother was a licensed practical nurse with experience working in mental wards. She later said that the family always encouraged Leonard to take an interest in the naked human form and to take pictures of girls, including his sisters and cousins. Leonard's brother was reportedly abusive to animals and he had a keen interest in fire. Mental illness ran in every generation of the Lake family. In January 1964, Lake joined the U.S. Marines and served for seven years. 
Part of that time was spent in Vietnam, where he earned several medals. His second tour of duty there was cut short due to unspecified medical conditions and he was shipped back to the States and given a medical discharge. After that, he entered a VA hospital for psychological treatment. Lake later became a member of the Society for Creative Anachronism, SCA, described by chronicler Joseph Harrington as a cult based on medieval worship involving sacrifices. Lake's ex-wife, who sometimes modeled for the hardcore S&M videos that Leonard produced and sold, admitted that her former spouse had a long-standing affiliation with a San Francisco witch's coven. Some of Leonard's friends later recalled that he often boasted of membership in a secret death cult. According to chronicler Joel Norris, Lake supported himself by making snuff videos and selling drugs. He also was known to stockpile guns. In his free time, he worked with kids at a local 4-H club. According to one report, that club was later the target of allegations of ritual abuse. Partner Charles Ng was the son of a wealthy family in Hong Kong. As a child, he was regularly chained and beaten unmercifully by his father. Later he was shipped off to attend an exclusive prep school in Leeds, England, where his uncle taught. He was arrested in September 1979, after entering the United States, for hit and run. All charges were dropped the next month after Ng agreed to enlist in the Marines, despite the fact that he was underage and not a U.S. citizen, and should therefore have been deported. His military service began on Aleister Crowley's birthday, October 12, 1979. Exactly two years and one day later, Ng robbed a U.S. Marine armory on Oahu and reportedly made off with machine guns, grenade launchers, night scopes, and pistols. He went AWOL a month later after being questioned about the robbery. He remained at large until the eve of Walpurgisnacht, 1982, when he and Lake were both arrested by an FBI SWAT team. On August 15, Ng was convicted and sent to the brig at Fort Leavenworth to begin serving a two-year sentence. Lake, who was not involved in the armory robbery, apparently was not charged. The next year, Lake's brother Donald disappeared and was never seen or heard from again. Leonard was later posthumously credited with Donald's murder, although it is unclear if there is any evidence to support that charge. In July 1984, the entire Dubs family disappeared without a trace. The family was reportedly abducted from their apartment, but no blood or other signs of a struggle were found, and there was no evidence of forced entry. Two neighbors across the street were watching the house at the time of the purported abductions and neither of them saw anything unusual. They did see Charles Ng, who had been released by that time and was reunited with Leonard Lake, leave the apartment, but he did so alone. Henry Dubbs, the patriarch of the family, had been a photographer who specialized in shooting children's parties. A number of other people disappeared from the San Francisco area in the following months. Their remains would later be discovered on the grounds of a ranch in Willsville, California, just 130 miles east of the city. The property was owned by the Balage family, Leonard Lake's former in-laws. Leonard called the ranch home. Among the victims found there were Lonnie Bond and Brenda O'Connor, who had been running a methamphetamine lab on the adjacent property. Killed along with the couple were their son, Lonnie Bond Jr., and Robin Stapley, who had been one of the founders of the San Diego chapter of the Guardian Angels. Stapley had been involved in running the meth lab. Lake was arrested and taken into custody on June 2, 1985 on a shoplifting charge. A .22 caliber Ruger fitted with a silencer was discovered in a search of his car trunk at the time of the arrest. Sidekick Charles Ng was with Lake at the time, but he managed to escape and quickly find his way to Canada. 
Less than three weeks before the arrest, a meter reader for PG&E had visited the Willsevil property and been greeted by a rather macabre scene, Leonard Lake standing shirtless in his front doorway, covered in blood and wearing a blood-encrusted apron. It is unclear whether this incident was reported, there is no indication that any action was taken at the time. While Leonard was being interrogated, following his arrest, he popped a cyanide capsule that he conveniently, and rather improbably, had hidden in the collar of his shirt. He died without ever regaining consciousness. Before popping the capsule, however, he gave his arresting officers the name of his escaped accomplice. Police promptly made an appointment to see Clarilyn Balaj, Leonard Lake's former wife. When they arrived to question her, she was in the company of Gloria Eberling, Lake's mother, and two of his sisters. The officers arranged with the women to conduct a search of the Willsevil property. Clarilyn told them that the ranch was difficult to find and she offered to lead them there at an agreed-upon time. When the officers met Clarilyn at the prearranged time, she was again in the company of Eberling. The two women had already been to the property in advance of the search. Balaj admitted that she had removed items from the property, including about a dozen videotapes. She was not arrested for deliberately tampering with the evidence, even though it soon became apparent that she had lied to police about the difficulty of finding the property so as to allow herself the opportunity to visit the ranch before the officers got there. Authorities later claimed that the evidence that she had removed was returned, though there is of course no way of knowing whether the tapes that were returned were the same ones that had been removed. There was also no way of knowing if any other items had been removed. With the Willsevil search underway, the first thing that investigators noticed was that the interior of the house and the property contained numerous bullet holes and bloodstains. Also noted was that there were eyeballs anchored to the bedroom floor at all four corners of the bed, and a powerful 250W floodlight mounted to the wall directly over the bed. Police quickly deduced that the room might have been used as a snuff film studio. Luckily, they happened to have an expert on such things. Tom Eisenman, a former Navy man, was a veteran investigator of sex crimes involving children. He had in the past worked on cases involving child pornography and snuff films. Why he happened to be around for the initial search, given that the suspect had only been charged with shoplifting at that point, remains a mystery. Leonard's diary was found under the bed, found therein were such notations as, I plan to build a prison for sex slaves, the perfect woman for me is one who is totally controlled. Leonard's prison had already been constructed, in the form of a large concrete bunker that Lake and Ng had reportedly just finished building on April 15. The bunker contained a vast array of military and police equipment, including boots, fatigues, canteens, bayonets, gun belts, rifles, shotguns, assault rifles, machine guns, manacles, handcuffs, hunting knives, a starlight scope, tripods, pistols, butcher knives, and switchblade knives. Also in the bunker was a copy of the collector. Incorporated into the design of the building was a secret, soundproof cell outfitted with a one-way viewing window, hidden cameras, and a list of rules for prisoners. Also found were numerous photographs of children in various stages of undress that had been taken at the South City Juvenile Hall, where Clarilyn worked. Adjacent to the bunker was an incinerator, which investigators logically concluded had been used to dispose of bodies. Hundreds of bone fragments were recovered from the property, most of them burned and then cut into two to four-inch pieces, making identification all but impossible. A final body count was never achieved, but evidence indicated that as many as 25 people had been killed and disposed of at the Willsevil Ranch. Buried on the grounds of the ranch were five-gallon buckets containing videotapes. The contents of most of those tapes have never been revealed.
One of them reportedly featured Leonard's mother, Gloria Eberling, Leonard's former wife, Clarilyn Balage, and Clarilyn's parents, Louis and Grace Balage, listening as Lake animatedly described his plans for the coming Armageddon. He saw himself as the new Adam, and he spoke of building a series of bunkers, each to be stocked with weapons and food and staffed with a sex slave. These slaves were to serve as the mothers of the new world order that would arise from the ashes of Armageddon. The Will's evil structure was apparently the prototype for this planned network of bunkers. Lake dubbed his plan Operation Miranda in honor of the heroine of Fowl's novel. Another videotape featured Lake and Ng physically and psychologically torturing two different women, one of whom was their former neighbor, Brenda O'Connor. On the tape, Lake can be heard telling Brenda, suffer, there's people that are going to want to know that we did our job. Additional videotapes were recovered from the abandoned former residence of Charles Ng. The contents of those tapes also remain a mystery. Early on in the investigation, the local chief of police issued a telling statement, this may be a case of mass murder or a cult situation, a cult case is a possibility we're not going to exclude at this time. The Department of Justice and the FBI soon descended upon the scene and the official story quickly became that only two men, Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, were involved in the murders. As the investigation continued, the home of Lewis and Grace Balage was searched. Investigators hauled off six bags of potential evidence, including audio tapes, copies of the photographs of the girls at Juvenile Hall, and a variety of S&M gear. No members of the Balage family were ever arrested. As the search at Willsevil continued, body parts continued to be unearthed. Few of these were ever identified, but one skull, featuring a 22 caliber bullet hole next to where the ear had been, had belonged to Randy Jacobson, a Vietnam veteran who had served with Lake. His last known address had been at the Pink Palace in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. In December 1985, Ng was convicted by a Canadian court on shoplifting and assault charges and given a four-and-a-half-year prison sentence. He had been arrested in early July. Six years would pass before Ng was extradited to the U.S.T.O. face charges arising from his complicity in the Willsevil operations. Seven more years would pass before his trial got underway. The lengthy delay in extraditing Ng was due to the fact that he was facing near-certain execution in the United States. As in most of the civilized world, capital punishment is considered barbaric in Canada. Canadian law therefore prohibits the extradition of suspects accused of capital crimes. Nevertheless, under pressure from U.S. authorities, the Supreme Court of Canada approved Ng's transfer to America. He was back in the States on September 26, 1991. Engie's attorneys later argued his case before the UN Human Rights Committee, whose members condemned the actions of the Canadian government, but by that time it was a moot point. The American people, with their famously short memories, had largely forgotten about the Ng case, but that was soon to change. In November 1991, a purported witness took to the national airwaves to claim that he had known Ng in Leavenworth in 1982. The witness said that Ng had talked incessantly about torture and mutilation and had allegedly discussed his fantasy of owning sex slaves. The inflaming of public opinion had begun. Ng's long and convoluted journey through the U.S. criminal justice system began in early 1992. Throughout that seven-year journey, the media consistently portrayed the defendant as the party responsible for the repeated delays in the legal proceedings. In truth though, it was the state that was responsible for the vast majority of the delays, as prosecutors manipulated the system in their ceaseless efforts to stage yet another sham, serial killer, trial. 
NG's first attorney, at his first preliminary trial, was Michael Burt, who was simultaneously serving as an attorney for Richard Ramirez. Over NG's objections, the presiding judge opted to appoint him new counsel. Ng appealed the judge's decision, but the California Supreme Court denied the appeal and the change of attorney order stood. Throughout the preliminary proceedings, every effort was made to present the defendant as a dangerous, uncontrollable animal. He was shackled to his courtroom chair and surrounded by heavily armed deputies at all times. During court recesses, he was literally kept in a steel cage. The purpose of a preliminary trial is for the state to present a body of evidence sufficient to convince a judge that the defendant should be held over for trial. This preview of the state's case can be very beneficial to the defense. However, since no defense is offered at such a proceeding, the public initially gets a very one-sided version of events. For that reason, defense attorneys on high-profile cases tend to air their side through the media. At the outset of NG's preliminary trial, however, a gag order was issued. The result of that order was that the general public only heard the prosecution's case. Ng repeatedly filed motions for a change of counsel. All such motions were routinely denied. In fact, Ng was not even allowed an evidentiary hearing to present his case for why a change of counsel was needed. He also filed a motion to have the judge dismissed. That motion was not only denied, but was stricken from the trial record. The preliminary proceedings resulted in indictments on 12 counts of murder. As Charles awaited trial, a superior court judge agreed to hear his lawsuit against his new attorneys. The judge indicated that Engie's suit was not, contrary to what the trial judge had ruled, a frivolous one. That soon became a moot point, however, when the trial was moved in September 1994 to Orange County. A new judge took the helm and new attorneys were appointed on both sides. A moving van delivered a mountain of evidence to the offices of both the Orange County District Attorney and Public Defender. The OCPD's office complained loudly about the condition of the evidence they received. Six tons of documents had been stuffed haphazardly and seemingly randomly into produce boxes. 500 pages of police reports were missing. All files pertaining to the Justice Department's investigation of the case were missing. The documents produced by the former defense team were reportedly illegible. Hundreds of photographs were unlabeled and unorganized. Thirteen boxes containing the most crucial documents were clearly marked, shred. Well over a hundred videotapes were included among the evidence, but only one was ever shown at trial. As the PD's office struggled to make sense of the evidence, while meeting resistance from the Justice Department and others, the new presiding judge opted to order the replacement of the new defense team. Charles Ng filed a request to have his team reinstated, but his motion was denied. The dismissed attorneys had been working to effect the removal of the judge from the case. The 4th District Court of Appeals ultimately reinstated NG's attorneys and strongly recommended that the judge be disqualified. A new judge was assigned to the case in February 1997. Through all of that legal maneuvering, it was Ng who was vilified by the press for purportedly manipulating the legal system to delay his fate. In October, the new presiding judge postponed the start of NG's trial yet again. A week later, the San Francisco Police Department made the remarkable announcement that it had lost many of its files on the case. Even more incredibly, bullets and blood samples had allegedly been disposed of. On April 20, 1998, Charles Ng asked the court that he be allowed to represent himself. The next day he requested that his attorneys be dismissed. In May his request to serve as his own counsel was granted. 
In June, a man to whom Ng had allegedly confessed in prison and who had been billed as a star witness for the prosecution, died in a single car crash. The media hinted ominously that Ng had somehow arranged the man's death, but it was actually the state that benefited. The witness's purported testimony was read into the record by a U.S. Marshal. The jury, of course, was not able to gauge the credibility of the man whose words were read in court and the defense was unable to cross-examine the deceased witness. Those are precisely the reasons why such testimony is virtually always disallowed, except in the Ng case. On June 17, Charles Ng made his debut as a defense attorney. By August 21, he had lost the right to represent himself. By mid-September, the preliminary proceedings had been wrapped up and jury selection began. On October 26, 1998, the long-awaited trial of Charles Ng finally began. Prosecutors began their presentation by showing the graphic videotape of the two women being tortured and raped. The images on the tape were disturbing, to say the least. Airing it for the jury did considerable damage to the defense's case. The tape, however, did not answer the question of whether Charles Ng was guilty of murder, since the murders of the women were not captured on tape, at least not on the particular tape that was aired in court. What the airing of the videotape did accomplish was to radically inflame the emotions of the jury. After that first airing in court, excerpts from the video promptly showed up on the evening news. The next day, prosecutors again played the video for the jury. It soon became apparent that that tape was the main plank of the state's case. It was aired repeatedly throughout the duration of the trial, both in the courtroom and by the media. Two of the jurors though only saw the first couple of airings of the tape, since they were replaced the very first week before opening arguments had even concluded. In late January 1999, the prosecution began its closing argument by, surprisingly enough, playing the tape again. Following that, the case would have ordinarily then gone to the jury for deliberations. But this was no ordinary case. So what happened next was that, as the San Francisco Chronicle noted, Ng testified as a surprise witness for his own defense, two days after his own attorneys had rested their case, and one day after prosecutors finished their own final summation of the evidence for the jury. On February 1st, the state got a shot at cross-examining the surprise witness. The first thing that prosecutors did was to play the tape again. Then they introduced inflammatory illustrations that Ng had drawn while imprisoned in Canada. That evidence had been previously disallowed, before Ng made the inexplicable decision to take the stand. Prosecutors then played the tape yet again. Needless to say, it is difficult to see how Ng aided his cause with his 11th hour appearance as a witness. After more than two weeks of deliberations, the jury returned with verdicts on 11 of the 12 murder counts, guilty. Ng's trial then moved on to the penalty phase, during which one of the jurors was dismissed and an investigator was charged with prosecutorial misconduct. The judge opted not to declare a mistrial, although such a ruling would seem to have been warranted. On April 20th, that most infamous of dates, Ng's father was called by the defense. On the stand, he admitted to the severe physical abuse he had inflicted on his son. The next day, Engie's mother took the stand and confirmed the horrendous level of abuse to which the boy had been subjected. The jury was not swayed. On May 3rd, they returned from deliberations with the recommendation that Charles be put to death. The next day it was claimed that Ng had somehow managed to contact a juror during deliberations. Two weeks later, that juror's phone number was allegedly found in his cell. On June 30, 1999, a sentence of death was formally imposed upon Charles Ng, thus ending his 14-year legal odyssey. 
Michael Rustigan, a criminologist from San Francisco State University, had this to say about that odyssey, I think it's perhaps the strangest case in the annals of serial killers from the standpoint of the trial. In terms of legal process, I'd have to say it's one of the most bizarre, confusing, and outrageous cases I have ever seen. Perhaps Rustigan just needs to spend a little more time studying serial killer cases, for as bizarre as the Inc. case was, it did not really differ dramatically from other serial killer cases, although it was perhaps pushing the boundaries just a bit when Clarilyn Balazs, billed as a star witness, took the stand and then was promptly dismissed after both sides failed to ask her a single question. Joel Norris, a psychologist, author, and expert on serial crime, has written that Lake and Ng were in possession of snuff videos that combined violent sex with vivid scenes of actual murders committed on camera, photo portraits of women in chains, snapshots of dead victims' moments before their burial, and bags of human bones that had been boiled down into soup. If such evidence did exist, it is inconceivable that it would not have been presented in court. But there is ample reason to believe that such images did exist amongst the hundreds of videotapes and photographic images. Why then was it not produced? The most logical conclusion is that the images either depicted Ng acting in conjunction with other unacknowledged perpetrators, or they showed that Ng did not actually participate in the murders. Robert Berdella Sr., a World War II veteran and member of the Knights of Columbus, was reportedly a physically and emotionally abusive father. His son and namesake was beaten regularly with a leather strap. The elder Berdella died suddenly at the young age of 39, reportedly of a heart attack. His widow remarried shortly after her husband's untimely death. Her son lived a solitary life, rarely playing outside the family home. He had very few friends. At the age of 16, he was raped by a restaurant co-worker. In 1968, while a sophomore at college, Robert Berdella Jr. was arrested for selling drugs to an undercover federal agent. He received a five-year suspended sentence. Just a month later, he was again arrested on drug charges, but those charges were dropped. The next year, while still a student, Bob financed the purchase of his home. He also performed a bizarre ritual on the grounds of the campus in which a duck was decapitated. After college, Berdella worked as a chef at many of the most renowned restaurants and country clubs in Kansas City. The ingredient lists of the dishes he prepared became the subject of morbid curiosity and speculation when evidence later emerged of Berdella's possible cannibalism. When Bob was not occupied with his culinary endeavors, he spent much of his time collecting bizarre artifacts, some reportedly fashioned from human body parts. By 1981, his hobby had become his full-time job. Berdella was the proprietor of a flea market stand known as Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Berdella also helped set up a neighborhood watch program, and then served as the liaison to the police and to a couple of nearby youth homes. According to neighbors, he had a constant flow of young men coming and going from his home. Many of them lived in the home for varying periods of time. One 25-year-old former boarder said that at times as many as four boarders lived at the house and that large groups of young men regularly attended parties there. These boarders and visitors were a constant feature of the home throughout the 1980s. During that time, an indeterminate number of young men were tortured and killed in the house. Officials claimed that none of the boarders were involved in any of the crimes. One of Berdella's boarders, a young hustler identified as Freddie Kellogg, took a rather interesting route to reach Bob's house. Kellogg was picked up by an unidentified man who handcuffed and then brutally assaulted him. The assault was stopped by a second unidentified man, who then introduced Kellogg to Berdella. Kellogg thereafter served as what was described as Berdella's liaison to the streets. 
many of Berdella's young companions, perhaps significantly, regularly signed up as volunteers for unspecified medical experiments at the nearby Quincy Research Center. One group of such volunteers reportedly staged a party at Bob's house to celebrate the completion of a 30-day program at the center. Many of Berdella's young protégés later said that he frequently claimed to know powerful people who were able to get things done. He reportedly did have a rather large network of connections for an owner of a flea market stand, including contacts in Africa, Asia, South America, and along the Pacific Rim. Berdella's first known victim, Jerry Howell, disappeared in July 1984. At least two witnesses told police that they suspected that Berdella had given the young man what they described as a hot shot. Another witness reported, word on the streets is he, Berdella, does bad things to kids. The police department's fugitive apprehension unit purportedly questioned, watched and harassed the suspect, but there is little indication that any serious effort was made to investigate Berdella. The next known victim disappeared in April 1985, followed by a third on the summer solstice of that same year. In September, Walter James Ferris disappeared as well. His wife told investigators that when her husband was last seen, he had been headed for Bob's house. This was the first time in the history of the Fugitive Apprehension Unit that the same suspect was positively linked to two missing persons cases, yet even then little effort was made to investigate Bob Berdella. In June 1986, both Todd Stoops and Larry Pearson disappeared. Pearson was abducted right after Bob returned from a trip to Ohio. He was held captive in the home for six weeks, while boarders and guests freely came and went. After he was killed, his severed head was kept in Berdella's freezer for a week. There is little doubt that the known victims represent only the tip of the iceberg. Evidence indicated that many more young men were tortured and killed, although authorities denied that fact and made concerted efforts to downplay and cover up the facts of the case. On March 29, 1988, Chris Bryson was abducted and imprisoned in Bob's house. Bryson, unlike the others, managed to escape from Berdella's three-story home, and in doing so brought about the exposure of Bob's operations. On April 2, Chris leapt to freedom from a window. He was naked and dazed, with visible wounds from the depravities that had been inflicted upon him. During his days of confinement, he had been kept heavily drugged and subjected to severe torture that was designed specifically to affect his vision, hearing, voice and hands. Fingers and chemical swabs had been jabbed into his eyes, his hands had been beaten with a tire iron and tightly bound with piano wire, and electric shocks had been administered to his eyes, ears and genitals. His ears had been packed full of caulking compound. He had been injected with various chemicals, including drain cleaner. He had been branded, subjected to Bob's version of acupuncture, and beaten about the head with a rubber mallet. And throughout it all, he had been photographed repeatedly. Officers Lloyd Harvey and Larry Lewis were the first officers to respond to the call of Bryson's escape. They were soon joined by officers John Metzger and Cynthia Cherry, who appear to have taken charge of the scene. Metzger volunteered to take the report. At least some of the officers on the scene were skeptical of Bryson's claims, despite the fact that he had severely reddened eyes, visible scars and burns on his face, arms, legs and back, and unmistakable rope burns on his wrists, mouth and ankles. Bryson initially claimed that Berdella had been assisted in the abduction by a blonde woman, that fact was later expunged from the official story. He also reported that Berdella had told him that there were others with whom he would later be shared. Bob had also warned him that he might be sent off to a remote location in Wyoming where his abuse would continue indefinitely. 
police promptly assembled a 12-man task force to investigate the case. Assigned to lead that task force was a man named Troy Cole, who later co-authored a self-serving book about the Berdella case. The selection of Cole was a provocative one. He was, by his own admission, a former employee of the CIA. Cole's law enforcement career began at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia in 1968. He was assigned to the White House. Two years later, he left the employ of the CIA, officially at least, to work for the District of Columbia Police Force. In 1972, he joined the Kansas City Force, where he was assigned to homicide and, naturally enough, the department's intelligence unit. The search warrant for Berdella's home was obtained by Officer Tom Eichel, who had been to Bob's house previously, with two young male hustler informants on an undercover assignment to make a drug purchase. No arrests had been made and no charges had been filed following that transaction. The search of Bob's Bazaar was led by Detective Lee Floyd, who had been a visitor to the shop in the past. Floyd knew Bob and he knew Bob's landlord at the flea market, who happened to be a former Kansas City police officer. Multiple searches of the home, which reportedly had a putrid odor, uncovered a wealth of evidence. Voluminous notes kept by Berdella were found, as well as meticulously detailed logs of the tortures he had inflicted upon his victims. Hundreds of photographs taken into custody depicted as many as 20 different men being tortured. Numerous videotapes, audiotapes and films were taken into custody as well, but their contents were never revealed. Human skulls were found. Tests revealed that two large plastic trash barrels and a smaller bucket had at one time been filled with blood. A sizable stockpile of powerful pharmaceuticals was seized, including acepromazine, chlorpromazine, and ketamine. In the yard were human vertebrae that had been cut into pieces with a skill saw, just as Leonard Lake and Charles Ng had done at Willsevil. Amazingly enough, despite all the evidence, Troy Cole announced that the investigation was not being treated as a homicide case. That stance became somewhat harder to justify when the housing of a chainsaw discovered at the house was found to be packed with human flesh, blood and hair. Around the time of that discovery, the FBI was brought in to assist on the case. Victim Chris Bryson had been taken, strangely enough, to the research psychiatric center to recover from his injuries. Berdella had been arrested and placed in a medical unit, his cell was a steel box with no bars and no windows. He was cut off from all contact with other inmates and kept heavily drugged with sleeping pills. Bob's dogs had been sent to the city pound, where they reportedly refused to eat dog food. At home, they had dined on mystery meat. Boarders spoke of eating mystery meat as well. Many in the community recalled with horror how Berdella had often prepared casseroles for potluck dinners at the flea market and for neighborhood functions. Bob was allowed one frequent, though quite clandestine, visitor, a Reverend Roger Coleman. The two men had a long-standing relationship, as evidenced by the fact that Coleman had been at the grand opening of Bob's Bazaar. In a bid to get him released from prison, he offered to let Berdella stay at his home, with his family, if the state agreed to release him on bond. Coleman later held a press conference and arranged a public television interview on Berdella's behalf. More information about Berdella emerged as investigators continued to talk to witnesses. Some reports linked Bob to the disappearances of two paperboys in Des Moines, Iowa, the same disappearances that were linked to Larry King and Michael Aquino. Some witnesses claimed that Berdella had been killing his victims in satanic ritual sacrifices. Others told of Bob making regular trips to a farm south of the city, frequently accompanied by heavy trash bags. Three different farms in the area were later identified, but it was deemed impractical to search them.
As frequently happens in serial killer cases, prosecutors chose to take their evidence to a grand jury whose proceedings are conducted in secrecy rather than holding a public preliminary trial. The grand jury handed down an indictment for the murder of Larry Pearson. Evidence reportedly included a detailed torture log, about 60 Polaroid photos, and Pearson's skull. A public defender appeared in court to represent Berdella, but the judge informed him that his services would not need it. Instead, the judge had opted to appoint private counsel for the defendant. Bob promptly entered a plea of guilty to the single count of first-degree murder. As the judge questioned him about his plea, he gave responses that his chroniclers described as flat and emotionless. He was given a life sentence with no possibility for parole. Berdella's trial was over before it had even begun. In September 1988, Bob was arraigned on additional murder counts. This time, he entered pleas of not guilty. The next month, Geraldo Rivera hosted a Halloween special on Satanism as only Geraldo can, which means that the subject was relegated to television's equivalent of the tabloid press. Nevertheless, Geraldo managed to round up a number of witnesses who claimed that Berdella had been involved in a satanic cult. One of those witnesses was Detective Lee Orr of the Kansas City, Kansas Police Force. One woman claimed to have witnessed Berdella performing a ritual murder. It should not have come as much of a surprise to the investigators who searched Berdella's house and shocked to find that Bob had a keen interest in the occult. Satanic and occult artifacts were scattered throughout the house. At least 20 books on Satanism and or witchcraft were found, along with books on sadism and a literary work entitled How to Create Poisons and Antidotes to Them. A record album entitled Black Mass for Lucifer sat atop Bob's turntable. Clippings of serial killer stories were scattered about. Buried in the yard was a jar containing bird feathers. The Bizarre Bazaar was filled with occult paraphernalia. Lead investigator Troy Cole, nevertheless, scoffed at the claims made on the show and insisted that the Berdella case had nothing to do with Satanism. Cole was not the only one to scoff at the claims, Michael Aquino did as well. Aquino was one of those to appear on Geraldo's special. His primary goal appeared to have been to denounce any and all prosecutions of satanic crime as witch hunts. The morning after the special aired, police received a call from the wife of one of Verdella's known victims. She told them that she had information for them but could not talk about it at the time. She promised to call back. She was never heard from again. With Berdella serving a life term, a rather morbid auction was scheduled to dispose of all his property, both from his home and from his place of business. A local millionaire and convicted bank robber named Delbert Dunmire consistently outbid all other bidders for such items as a custom-designed torture bed and a collection of ceremonial robes. The auction was ultimately cancelled when Dunmire offered to purchase the remaining inventory. The next month, he bought Bob's house as well. He then leveled it, destroying all remaining evidence, and sold the vacant lot. It seems very likely that those actions were taken to hide evidence of the involvement of others, including possibly Dunmire himself. Cole's team claimed that Berdella gave full confessions to his crimes, but they appear to have been very carefully crafted confessions that were given in total secrecy. All of the confession sessions were held in a private room in the county jail. Rather than employing the services of a court reporter, the task force brought in a private stenographer. All aspects of the resulting confessions were tailored to conform to the state's version of events. Bob confessed to precisely six murders, which was the official tally. No new names appeared in the confessions. Bob claimed that he disposed of the bodies in the trash, not at the farms that he frequently visited. He denied having any links to any satanic groups.
He took sole responsibility for all of the crimes. He quashed the recurrent rumors of police involvement. He claimed that a torture log that did not match up with any of the six official victims referred to experiments he had performed on a stray dog. And, most provocatively, he explained away a specific reference in one of his logs to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. His claim was as follows, we just had the TV on, and apparently something about Ollie North came on, there is no indication that Berdella felt compelled at any other time to dutifully record in his logs what was transpiring on the television. Berdella ultimately received two life sentences and two conditional life sentences. They would prove to be very short life sentences. He served only a few years at a maximum security facility before he died, officially of a heart attack. Many suspect the true cause of death was poisoning. Bob Berdella was just 43. Gary Heidnick was born in 1943 to a father who was described as a strict disciplinarian. In the ninth grade, Gary enrolled at the prestigious Staunton Military Academy in Virginia. In 1961, he joined the Army and was, as previously noted, sent for medic training and then assigned to a field hospital in West Germany. After three months there, he went on sick call and was given Stelazine, a powerful tranquilizer normally used to treat severely psychotic states. Records do not indicate that Gary was suffering from such a condition at that time. In January 1963, Heidnick was honorably discharged with a service-related mental disability. Not long after that, he earned a degree as a licensed practical nurse and then began training as a psychiatric nurse at a VA hospital. Over the next two and a half decades, he would be hospitalized as a psychiatric patient at least 25 times, and he would attempt suicide at least 17 times. And those figures are far from complete, since there is an unexplained six-year gap in Gary's medical records. On Halloween night, 1966, Heidnick drove his motorcycle into a head-on collision. Four years later, his mother succeeded in doing what Gary and his brother Terry had failed at repeatedly, she killed herself. In the spring of 1971, Gary paid a visit to Malibu, California. It is unclear what the purpose of that trip was, but just after returning to Philadelphia Heidnick decided to start his own church. On October 12, 1971, the birth date of Alistair Crowley, the United Church of the Ministers of God, was formally incorporated. Gary and Terry Heidnick were both founding members. Most of the initial members of the congregation were institutionalized black women whom the state had labeled retarded. At that same time, elsewhere in the country, Jim Jones was getting his church up and running as well, and he was going about it the same way, by recruiting institutionalized black women. In September 1972, Heidnick was released from one of his former <coughs> states in institutions. From that point forward, there is a six-year gap in Gary's records. Very little can be discerned of his activities during that time period. No one, including Heidnick, can account for most of that six-year span. It is almost as if Gary Heidnick ceased to exist for an extended period of time, and then he reappeared. All that is known is that in 1975, on the Vernal Equinox, Bishop Heidnick opened a tax-free Merrill Lynch account on behalf of his church with an initial deposit of $1,500. It was not long before that account was valued at an astounding $545,000. In 1976, Heidnick reportedly fired a gun at an unidentified man. The bullet grazed the victim's face. Gary was charged only with aggravated assault and carrying a gun without a license, although assault with a deadly weapon and attempted murder would have been more appropriate charges. After one week, the charges were dropped entirely. Heidnick was not heard from again until 1978.
It was at that time that he came up with the idea of checking a girl out of an institution and chaining her in his basement, where he could repeatedly torture and rape her. Gary was caught in fairly short order and charged with an array of crimes, including kidnapping, rape, false imprisonment, unlawful restraint, involuntary deviate sexual intercourse, interfering with the custody of a committed person, and recklessly endangering another person. In November 1978, Gary waived his right to a jury trial and placed his fate in the hands of the judge. It proved to be a wise decision. The judge dropped all the felony counts after determining that the victim was too retarded to testify. Heidnik was found guilty only of various misdemeanor charges. He received a three to seven year prison sentence, but never set foot in an actual prison. Instead, he spent four and a half years institutionalized at various hospitals and was set free on April 12, 1983. By 1986, his church was thriving and he had a steady flow of women passing through his home. On November 26, 1986, one of them, Josefina Rivera, found herself imprisoned in Heidnik's basement. Three days later, Sandra Lindsay joined Rivera in the basement. Lindsay had known Gary since the two had been institutionalized together at the Elwyn Institute, where she had been formally classified as mildly retarded. Lindsay's family knew Heidnik as well, and they knew a man named Tony Brown, who sometimes lived at Gary's house. Brown was a regular visitor to the Lindsay home. Heidnik and Brown reportedly shared a number of girlfriends. Sandra's mother reported her daughter's disappearance and she gave the investigating officers Heidnik's name, address and telephone number. Little effort was made to contact him. In his basement, Sandra was subjected to all manner of physical and psychological torture. Gary's prisoners were either not fed at all or they were fed dog food. That was later supplemented with the ground flesh of the prisoners who did not survive their ordeal. Survivors were given a choice between starvation and cannibalism. They were repeatedly raped by their captor and forced to sexually assault each other. They were kept chained at all times, sometimes in a manner that forced them to remain in an awkward standing position for hours. They were tortured with electric shocks. On occasion, they were forced into a covered pit. Their eardrums were gouged with a screwdriver to prevent them from hearing when their captor came and went from the house. On the winter solstice of 1986, Gary added Lisa Thomas to his collection. Deborah Dudley was added as well, around the same time. Heidnik by then had several women chained in his basement, and yet, throughout the time that he was collecting his sex slaves, he continued to have consensual sexual encounters with other women, some of whom he regularly brought to his home. One of those women later said that Josefina Rivera sometimes accompanied Gary on his dates and appeared to do so voluntarily. In January 1987, Heidnik appeared in court, acting as his own attorney, to answer charges that he had fallen behind on support payments to his ex-wife. The previous January, following attacks on his estranged wife, Gary had been charged by the DA's office with spousal rape, involuntary deviate sexual intercourse and indecent assault. Those charges were all dismissed. On February 7, 1987, one of Heidnik's sex slaves in training, Sandra Lindsay, died. Shortly afterwards, the remaining prisoners heard the sounds of a power saw in an industrial food processor that Gary had rushed out to buy. He reportedly ground up some parts of Lindsay's corpse and cooked others. His remaining captives wisely began to work out an escape plan, but Rivera tipped Heidnik off and the plan was foiled. Three days after Sandra's death, neighbors became concerned about the stench of burning flesh emanating from Heidnik's home. The police were called and quickly discovered that it was impossible to see into the home and difficult to gain entry. 
The shades were all drawn tight and rips in them had been carefully and thoroughly duct taped. A security steel door had been installed and all the home's windows were heavily barred. Neighbors demanded that the responding officer knock down the door and search the residence, but he declined to do so. It does not appear that there was any follow-up investigation after that initial visit to the house. About five weeks later, Gary lost another of his prisoners, Deborah Dudley was electrocuted while immersed in the water-filled pit. Around that same time, Josefina Rivera began going out with Gary to troll for replacement sex slaves. On March 23, just after the spring equinox, the two of them abducted Agnes Adams. The next day the prisoners broke free, looking very much like they had just emerged from a prisoner of war camp. Heidnett was promptly arrested, along with Tony Brown, who was initially charged as an accomplice. Gary was taken to the Philadelphia Detention Center and held in isolation, cut off from contact with other inmates. Brown was the first to relate to detectives the morbid details of the crimes. He claimed that he had seen Heidnick cutting up and raping a corpse. The freezer in the house was partially filled with human body parts. Human bones were found in the yard, cut up with a saw, just as Lake and Verdella had done. Also discovered in the home, not surprisingly, was a large cache of Thorazine. Investigators soon discovered that Heidnick had considerable financial resources. In addition to his church's investment account, valued at well over $500,000, he had at least one personal account with a substantial balance. He also had a new, fully loaded Cadillac, a Rolls Royce, a Dodge van and a Dodge Dart. When taken into custody, he had $2,000 cash in his pocket. Heidnick's preliminary hearing began in April 1987. The prosecution team was led by Ronald Castile, a former Marine platoon commander in Vietnam. Heidnick was charged with an array of crimes, including murder, kidnapping, rape, aggravated assault, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, indecent exposure, false imprisonment, unlawful restraint, simple assault, recklessly endangering another person, indecent assault, criminal solicitation, and possession and abuse of a corpse. Gary's victims were called to offer their testimony at the preliminary proceedings. Josefina Rivera reportedly spoke in a detached, flat, emotionless voice. The other women testified that Rivera frequently beat them, even when Gary was not there, and seemed to enjoy doing so. She was referred to as the boss of the basement. On April 6, victim Lisa Thomas filed a civil petition asking for the assets of Heidnick's church to be frozen and a conservator appointed pending resolution of a civil suit brought against Heidnick by the victims. The church's assets were frozen, but the judge opted to hold off for two weeks on appointing the conservator, who was appointed on April 20th. Two hours before that appointment, however, Heidnick filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Eight days later, federal courts claimed jurisdiction over the assets case. Strangely, Heidnick's will specify that those assets should go to the Veterans Administration and the Peace Corps. On May 1st, Tony Brown was quietly released from custody. Two weeks after Heidnick's trial concluded, all charges against him were dropped and authorities thereafter pretended as though he had never been named as an accomplice. On August 9, 1987, police raided a local apartment and made a gruesome discovery. The remains of five women were found in a bedroom that had been nailed shut. Another body was found in a closet that had also been nailed shut. Parts of a seventh body were found on the roof of the building and in the basement of a neighboring building. A retarded black man named Harrison, Marty, Graham was taken into custody and dubbed the Madman of Marshall Street. He confessed that his killings had begun the previous winter, about the time that Gary began collecting his victims. 
Graham also confessed to having committed acts of necrophilia. Officials denied that there were any connections between the Heidnick and Graham cases. Their homes were less than two miles apart. Chuck Peruto was assigned as Heidnick's defense counsel. Trial watchers noted that he had a penchant for young, shapely women. Lynn Abraham was the presiding judge. She had previously worked for District Attorney Arlen Specter, most notable for concocting the single bullet theory to explain the Kennedy assassination. She had also worked for HUD and for Mayor Frank Rizzo's redevelopment authority before being elevated to the bench. During her tenure as a prosecutor, Abraham had been known to surprise the city's medical examiners by showing up to view autopsies for reasons best known only to her. During the opening phase of Heidnick's trial, she distinguished herself by repeatedly interrupting the questioning of potential jurors. Even so, the jury was seated in just one and a half days, a notable feat for such a high-profile case. Gary was kept heavily dosed with Thorazine throughout the trial. He sat at the defense table staring straight ahead, saying nothing and, by all appearances, hearing and seeing nothing. He was described by trial watchers as nearly catatonic. His fitness to stand trial and participate in his own defense was apparently never questioned. His attorney's opening statement would have been remarkable were it not for the fact that it was virtually the same opening statement that has been offered by so many other serial killer advocates. The judge said something this morning about people being innocent until proven guilty. My client is not innocent. He is very, very guilty. All testimony concerning the medical treatment that Heidnick received while in the military in Germany was disallowed. The jury never saw the documentation of Gary's unwitting participation in military LSD experiments. The jury never heard that only one in 79,000 military veterans who apply for benefits due to a mental disability get a 100% disability rating and are awarded benefits for life. Heidnick had received such a deal, and he had not even filed for it. A man named Jack Apshay, a former helicopter door gunner in Vietnam turned psychologist specializing in records research, arrived in court with extensive, meticulously organized records of Heidnick's psychiatric history, minus the six years for which no records exist. Virtually all of Apshay's well-documented evidence was disallowed. The ruling by the judge to disallow the introduction of that evidence was a most unusual one, however, in that it seemed to bar only the defense from introducing the material, but not the prosecution or the judge herself. The state was allowed to pick and choose which documents it wanted entered into evidence, and Judge Abraham even handpicked some of the documents and read them into the record. The judge also disallowed all questions pertaining to the possible involvement of Tony Brown. What she did allow introduced into evidence was Heidnick's past criminal record. While that would normally be inadmissible, Abraham allowed it in through a backdoor route, the testimony of his former captives to whom he had bragged of his past exploits. He had also told them that he had killed six women in all, though no other victims were ever identified. The picture of Josefina Rivera that emerged at trial was of a mind-controlled accomplice to Gary. Victim Agnes Adams testified that she had seen Josefina working the streets two weeks before her own capture, which occurred several weeks after Rivera had been imprisoned. Rivera herself admitted on the stand that there were times when she was left unsupervised and could have escaped. The other victims named her along with Heidnick in the civil suits that were filed. A doctor Clancy McKenzie was called as a witness for the defense, but his testimony certainly did not benefit the defendant. Peruto went so far as to label his own witness a flake in comments that appear in print. He did not bother though to explain why it was he who had called that flake to the stand. Following the feeble attempt to mount a defense, the jury was sequestered to begin deliberations. 
Strangely, a gag order that had been issued early on, purportedly so as not to contaminate the jury, remained in effect. The jury returned guilty verdicts on two counts of murder and multiple counts of rape, kidnapping, aggravated assault, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. During the penalty phase that followed, not a single defense witnesses was called. Peruto's closing argument, with his client's life on the line, lasted just four minutes. Two death sentences were delivered after less than two hours of deliberations. A psychiatric report prepared after the trial stated, from Gary Heidnick's history, it was clear that his first psychosis was facilitated by a near-lethal dose of hallucinogenic substance given to him while he was in Germany in the military. The same report noted, Heidnick's recall of the four months with the women is very hazy and dreamlike. Whether such information would have influenced the jury, whose members likely had no awareness of the implications of the MKULTRA projects in which Heidnick was verifiably involved, is largely a matter of speculation. One of those jurors was, oddly enough, a research chemist with PPG Industries. Jeffrey Dahmer was born in 1960, the son of a research chemist with PPG Industries. Father Lionel Dahmer, Ph.D., who admitted that he, as a boy, had been fascinated with fire and the art of bomb-making, recalled that at 13 he had wanted to hypnotize a girl so that he could control her entirely. Lionel Dahmer also said that Jeffrey had been molested at the age of 8, purportedly by a neighborhood boy. By the age of 10, Jeff was experimenting with dead animals and learning to use acid to dispose of the bodies. In 1975, three neighborhood kids found a mutilated dog in the woods behind the Dahmer home, its decapitated, gutted carcass hanging from a tree. A cross of sticks was nearby. Three years later, while on a senior class trip to Washington, D.C., Jeffrey Dahmer made a call from a payphone and then announced to his high school classmates that he had secured them an appointment to visit the office of the Vice President of the United States. Though his friends naturally were skeptical, Jeffrey did indeed lead them on a tour of Walter Mondale's office, followed by a visit to the office of prominent writer Art Buckwald. It has never been explained how the aspiring serial killer had established such impressive contacts in Washington. And it has never been revealed who it was that Dahmer called that day to arrange the impromptu private tours. A girl who dated Jeffrey briefly during their senior year recalled one date during which a seance was conducted at the Dahmer home. Someone in the group had suggested that it might be a good idea to try to contact Satan. The girl made a hasty exit from the house. Just after Jeffrey's graduation, in 1978, his parents filed for divorce, both of them accusing the other of extreme cruelty. Jeffrey later claimed that he killed for the first time that summer, but no evidence was ever produced to support that claim. The identity of the purported victim was determined by having Dahmer choose from a collection of photographs of boys who had been reported missing around that time. Jeff enrolled at Ohio State University but attended for just one quarter before being taken to a military recruiter by his father. He began his military career on January 12, 1979. Like Heidnick, Dahmer sought training as a military policeman but was instead trained as a medic. He completed his training on the summer solstice and he was then assigned to a West German military hospital. Dahmer was processed out of the service at Fort Jackson, South Carolina on March 26, 1981. His release came early, allegedly due to chronic alcoholism, but it was an honorable discharge with full benefits. Jeffrey next surfaced in Miami, Florida, where he briefly stayed before moving back home and in with his father and stepmother. In October 1981, he was arrested for disorderly conduct, possession of an open container of alcohol, and resisting arrest. 
He paid a $60.00 fine and was sent on his way. Shortly after that, he moved in with his paternal grandmother. In 1982, he was arrested for indecent exposure. He again paid a nominal fine. In January 1985, he began working at the Ambrosia Chocolate Company. At about that same time, he began regularly visiting Milwaukee's gay bars and bathhouses, experimenting on unsuspecting victims with surreptitious druggings. The Club Bath Milwaukee was a favored lab for his field experiments. The bathhouse owners were well aware of Jeffrey's activities, but little if anything was done to curtail them. In March 1987, Dahmer was again arrested for indecent exposure after masturbating in front of two young boys. He paid $42 in court costs and was given a one-year suspended sentence, from which he was released in March 1988. At that time, Dahmer was still living with his grandmother. It was in her basement that he allegedly began dismembering and dissolving bodies. His first victim was purportedly killed in a hotel and then brought back to Grandma's house in a suitcase transported by taxi. The body of his second victim was allegedly allowed to ripen in her basement for a week. The odor, needless to say, would have been unbearable. Nevertheless, it was claimed that Grandma had no idea what Jeffrey was up to in the basement. In September 1988, Gomer got his own apartment, which soon became one of America's most infamous death houses. That very same month he was accused of molesting a young boy. The following May he was convicted of second-degree sexual assault. Despite an appeal to the court by Lionel Dahmer, Jeffrey received a three-year sentence. He served just ten months in a minimum security facility on a work-release program that allowed him to continue working at the chocolate factory. He reportedly kept a mummified head and genitals in his work locker during that time. On Thanksgiving, Dahmer was given a rare gift, 12 hours of freedom. He returned late and visibly intoxicated, with no repercussions. In early 1990, Dahmer was released on parole. He remained on parole throughout his killing spree, but no one ever visited his home to check up on him. 32 that would later become the basis of a lawsuit filed by the survivors of some of Dahmer's victims. The suit plausibly contended that a routine visit would have saved countless lives. Before Jeffrey's parole records were made public, they were, in the words of chronicler Don Davis, well vacuumed, and, mostly blanked out, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections ordered Dahmer's parole officer, Donna Chester, not to talk to the press. In July 1990, Dahmer hit a 15-year-old boy over the head with a rubber mallet and then attempted to strangle him. Following the attack, he then inexplicably called the kid a taxi and sent him on his way. The victim was taken to a medical center where he gave police an address and a description of his assailant. No one bothered to investigate the incident. At about that same time, Jeffrey acquired a 57-gallon drum of acid, which he purportedly brought home in a taxi, he never owned a car, and muscled up to his apartment by himself. Two men and a moving dolly were required to remove the drum. In May 1991, a 14-year-old boy was seen fleeing Dahmer's apartment by two young women who called the police to report the incident. The boy was naked, bleeding and drugged into a near stupor. The responding officers chose to believe Dahmer's tale of a lover's quarrel, even though the witnesses, who were still on the scene, angrily informed them that they had seen the terror-stricken boy actively resisting Dahmer's efforts to restrain him, and despite the fact that the victim was clearly a minor. The witnesses claimed that the officers told them go away and refused to take their names. They opted not to run a routine background check on the possible suspect, which would have revealed that Dahmer was a convicted child molester who was still on parole from his previous molestation conviction. 
The victim of that previous molestation was the brother of the bleeding, terrified young boy in front of Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment. Amazingly enough, the three officers on the scene claimed that they actually accompanied the pair back to Dahmer's apartment and noticed nothing amiss there. That was in spite of the fact that there was a three-day-old rotting corpse lying on the bed, with the attendant smell of death permeating the apartment. There was also an abundance of morbid artifacts and photos lying about the home. Nevertheless, the officers purportedly saw nothing wrong and left the scene with the victim still in Dahmer's custody. As soon as they left, Dahmer killed the boy and then raped and disemboweled the corpse. The mother of one of the two witnesses called the police after reading a newspaper account of a missing boy who closely resembled the naked young man, but her concerns were dismissed. She then contacted the local FBI office, but she was rebuffed there as well. The woman claimed that she was instructed not to talk to the press. Dahmer's last intended victim was Tracy Edwards, a 31-year-old father of six. Edwards had recently jumped bail in Mississippi on charges of sexually battering a 13-year-old girl. He escaped from his would-be abductor and went to authorities with a description of the assailant and his rancid-smelling apartment. Edwards told police that he had seen Dahmer undergo a sudden, radical transformation, his face was completely changed. I wouldn't have recognized him. It was as if the devil himself stood in front of me, the apartment, he said, was filled with photos of male torsos. It was filled with considerably more than that. There were bloodstains on the bed. There was an extensive collection of photos depicting bodies in various stages of dismemberment. Four intact heads were found, one in the refrigerator and three in a freezer. Another freezer was filled with wrapped, unmarked meat and a human heart. A file drawer was filled with bones. The barrel of acid was brimming with miscellaneous body parts. One kettle was filled with skulls and another contained severed hands and penises. Seven skulls in all were found. Gruesome photo albums were scattered about the house. Dahmer was initially charged with four counts of murder, and his bail was set at $1 million. Prosecutors soon added eight additional murder counts and raised the bail amount to $5 million. Another three counts were then added, although there were no body parts or photos to support the additional charges. Prosecutors claimed that one photo album had been destroyed. They also claimed that the bodies of the victims depicted in that particular album had been, conveniently enough, tossed out with the trash. Jeffrey's trial began in January 1992. His attorney, Gerald Boyle, who had previously set his sights on becoming the city's district attorney, had waived his client's right to a preliminary trial. Boyle had also allowed his client to give detailed confessions to his crimes during lengthy interrogations. Dahmer entered a plea of guilty but insane. He was given a 937-year prison sentence. By the end of the year, his apartment building had been destroyed. The three police officers who had, unknowingly or otherwise, aided and abetted the serial killer were cleared of any wrongdoing. There were, inevitably, questions that were left unanswered by the trial. Two of the victims had been abducted from Chicago, and Dahmer did not own or have the use of a car. How were those victims transported? The remains of some victims were never found. Were their bodies really disposed of in the trash? And if so, why did Dahmer choose to dispose of only a select few bodies? Some aspects of Jeffrey's confessions were completely unsupported by the evidence. To what extent did Dahmer's interrogators shape those confessions? One victim's grandmother reported receiving several phone calls during which she heard groaning, choking and faint cries of, help me, help me, help me. Those calls came a few weeks after the disappearance of her grandson. Was he kept alive for an extended period of time? 
Dahmer, like all collectors, was obsessed with gaining control over his victims. His preferred means of doing so, and of disposing of the bodies that accumulated from his failed experiments, was through the use of chemicals, an interest that was acquired, perhaps, from his research chemist father. Jeff was reportedly working on perfecting a home lobotomy procedure that involved drilling a hole in the victim's forehead and then injecting various combinations of chemicals. Dahmer has been described as a dabbler in Satanism, but it is likely that he was more than just a dabbler. In his apartment, he had a detailed plan for constructing a satanic altar. The plan incorporated the human skulls and other artifacts that he had been collecting. He told authorities that he believed that by constructing the altar, and by consuming the flesh of his victims, he would be infused with special powers and energies that would help him to succeed socially and financially. Oddly enough, in March 1999 the brother of one of Dahmer's victims was found stabbed to death. Police described the young man's death as a ritual sacrifice. Dahmer served just two years of his prison sentence before he was inexplicably paired with two homicidal inmates on an unsupervised work detail. Only one of the three made it through the day. It was not, needless to say, Jeffrey Dahmer. After his death, Lionel Dahmer waged a macabre battle with Jeff's mother over preserving his brain for study. As a child, Herb Baumeister reportedly never showed any emotion, even when his father became physical, which apparently happened quite frequently. Herb Baumeister Sr. had served in World War II, after which he graduated from Indiana University School of Medicine and began work as an anesthesiologist. His son and namesake initially set out to follow in his father's academic footsteps by enrolling in college as an anatomy major. Unlike his father, however, Herb Jr. dropped out of school. He then married Juliana Sater, the daughter of a superintendent at the Naval Air Warfare Center. Herb and Juliana were both members of the Young Republicans, as was Ted Bundy. Not long after the marriage, Herb's father had his newlywed son committed to LaRue D. Carter Memorial Hospital, a state-run mental hospital. The Carter facility catered to patients with serious mental impairments, yet there is no indication that Herb was, at that time, seriously impaired. And if he had been, his father was an extremely wealthy man who could have easily afforded to get his son private care. Herb's senior's choice of facilities, therefore, was a rather odd one. Long before the confinement at Carter, Herb Sr. had reportedly secreted his young son off to be administered mental examinations. Herb was released from the Carter facility after two months. His diagnosis noted that he exhibited two or more distinct personalities. Following his confinement, Baumeister took a job at the Indianapolis Star. The position that he took at the newspaper was known to be regularly filled by the sons and daughters of the wealthy and powerful. Herb's next job, driving a hearse, provided him with his requisite bloody. Herb Sr. then once again pulled some strings to land Herb Jr. a position with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, where one of his duties was serving as the Bureau's liaison to the Indiana State Police. Herb left the Bureau in 1985 and thereafter remained unemployed while wife Juliana occupied her time doing volunteer work. In 1986, warrants were issued for Herb's arrest on charges of theft and conspiracy to commit theft. True to form, Baumeister opted to waive his right to a jury trial and place his fate in the hands of a judge. The bench trial, such as it was, was over in just one day, Herb was found not guilty on all counts. By that time, the Baumeisters had been living quite well for an extended period of time, even though neither of them was gainfully employed. Herb then decided that the time was right to start up his own business. With a $350,000 loan from his mother, he opened a thrift store. 
1988, in conjunction with the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, he founded Thrift Management, Inc. Herb's close association with the Children's Bureau, which primarily catered to orphans, the type of victims who aren't likely to be missed, hints at the possibility that his thrift store business was a cover for more profitable and nefarious business pursuits. By 1990, Herb's company was growing rapidly and a second Save-A-Lot outlet opened its doors for business. To staff his stores, Herb assembled a workforce of attractive, young, male employees, just as John Gacy had done. By all outward appearances, things were going quite well for the Baumeisters. In November 1991 Herb, Juliana and their three kids moved into a new home, a four-bedroom, five-bathroom estate with an indoor pool situated on 18. Five acres. Known as Fox Hollow Farm, the property also featured a barn and horse stables. The family maintained a second home as well, and also had access to a condominium on Lake Wawasee owned by Herb's mother. Three years after moving to Fox Hollow Farm, 13-year-old Eric Baumeister discovered a skeleton in the backyard. He dutifully reported his find to his mother, but Julie told no one, including the police, of her son's discovery. By that time, young gay men and male prostitutes in the Indianapolis Area 33 had been disappearing for a very long time. From about 1980 on, their bodies began surfacing in Indiana and western Ohio. Many were strangled and deposited along Ohio's Interstate 70. One victim had his arms, legs and head severed and his torso completely drained of blood. The severed parts were never recovered. Four bodies were found clustered together on October 14, 1983, in what was described as a private graveyard. A nearby barn was found to contain both a pentagram and an inverted cross. In the mid-1980s, a man from Terre Haute, Indiana named Larry Ayler confessed to kidnapping, torturing and murdering as many as 23 of the victims. The second victim that he took credit for killing disappeared on the eve of Halloween, 1982, the sixth went missing on the spring equinox of 1983. Ayler claimed that for six of the torture murders, he worked with accomplices. Among the accomplices he fingered was Robert David Little, a professor at Indiana State 33 Indianapolis, interestingly enough, is where the Reverend Jim Jones launched the first incarnation of his People's Temple and gathered his first recruits. University and the former head of the Terre Haute chapter of the ACLU. Little and Ayler had lived together since 1975. In May 1983, a task force was formed. The following month, dozens of law enforcement officials gathered for a summit to review the case. The task force made little progress, however, until an anonymous tipster turned in Ayler. From that point on, Ayler was purportedly under constant surveillance, but the disappearances and killings continued. Ayler had previously been arrested in August 1978 after attacking and stabbing a hitchhiker, who he then left for dead. When taken into custody, Ayler was in possession of a sword, three knives and a canister of tear gas. He was charged with attempted murder and his bond was initially set at $50,000. After one day, his bail was lowered to $10,000, allowing his friends to free him. Ayler's attorney paid off the victim with a check for $2,500 and all charges were dropped. On November 13, the presiding judge dismissed the case and ordered Ayler to pay just $43 in court costs. Three years later, in 1981, Ayler was again arrested for drugging a 14-year-old boy and then dumping his unconscious body. It is unclear how that case was disposed of. When Ayler was arrested on suspicion of involvement in the I-70 murders, officers reportedly found a bloodstained knife in his truck. 
The boots that he was wearing, which were also bloodstained, matched plaster casts of boot prints taken from one of the crime scenes. The tires on his truck also matched plaster casts of tracks present at one of the murder scenes. As legal counsel, Ayler retained David Shippers, who later achieved notoriety as the Democratic attorney who presented the Republican-controlled House Judiciary Committee's legally specious case for the impeachment of President Clinton, and who later still achieved yet more notoriety by raising his voice to question limited aspects of the official September 11 story. In the Ayler case, Shippers promptly filed a motion to suppress all evidence seized in the case. His motion was granted and the state's case against his client essentially evaporated. Ayler was freed and he immediately packed up and moved to John Gaish's Chicago, where he was later seen dumping trash bags filled with body parts into the trash bin of an apartment building. He was described as having a glassy look in his eyes as he went about his task. In addition to his fingerprints on the trash bags, investigators who searched his apartment found bloodstains, a hacksaw, more trash bags, and a t-shirt belonging to the dismembered victim. Shippers opted not to represent Ayler again, but he did serve as an advisor to the defense team. Ayler was convicted and, on October 3, 1986, sentenced to death. Four years later, he fingered Professor Robert David Little as the mastermind behind the killings. He also claimed that the professor had photographed the sadistic murders in progress. Ayler was administered a polygraph examination, which he reportedly passed. Search warrants were served at the home that Little had shared with Ayler as well as at Little's university office. A number of videotapes and photographs were seized. Seized phone records revealed that Ayler had established a pattern of making late-night telephone calls to the house from various locations, though it is unclear if those locations corresponded to the locations of the disappearances. Little was indicted, brought to trial, and then acquitted on April 17, 1991. Ayler though continued to supply information to investigators, who were attempting to build a case against Lil and other accomplices. Those efforts came to an abrupt end in March 1994, when Ayler died, reportedly from AIDS. Many of his victims disappeared from the very same two-square-mile section of Indianapolis, peppered with gay bars, that served as herbs hunting grounds. Like Ayler, who was supplied by a doctor with Placidal to drug his victims, Herb had ready access to drugs, thanks to his father's prescription pads. Herb had also been to Ohio dozens of times in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Police first approached Herb and Julie to question them about the disappearances in November 1995. Herb immediately retained an attorney, James Voiles, the lawyer who a few years before had won an acquittal for Robert David Little. In May 1996, the Children's Bureau terminated its contract with Herb and began publicly distancing itself from his operation, purportedly because the Save-A-Lot stores were in financial trouble. On June 20, Herb informed his wife that he was taking the kids for physical examinations and then enrolling them in a summer program at the Culver Military Academy, where aspiring serial killer Doug Clark once resided. Julie had other plans, however, and on June 23, she consented to a police search of the property. When the search began the next day, Herb was away at the lake house with his son Eric. Investigators almost immediately discovered human bones and bone fragments on the property. They were not hard to find, since they were scattered about in plain sight, and there were literally thousands of them. Even though indications were that this was a multiple homicide case, it was assigned to Detective Sergeant Kenneth Wisman, who had never handled a homicide case. Police promptly, and rather ridiculously, claimed that they were days, if not weeks, away from being ready to question Herb Baumeister. 
The majority of the bones found at Fox Hollow Farm had been burned, crushed and scattered, making identification nearly impossible. It was not possible to even estimate the number of victims, though it was determined that there were no less than 11. More than 6,000 bones and bone fragments were recovered. Strangely though, no skulls were ever found. Although the site where the bodies had been burned, readily identifiable by the scorched ground, was in clear view of the home's kitchen window, Julie Baumeister swore that she knew nothing about the murders. Neighbors, however, questioned how the avid gardener, who spent a good deal of time in her yard, could have been unaware of thousands of bones, many of them visible to the naked eye. Julie Baumeister told police investigators that her husband was an avid videographer who maintained a private collection of hundreds of tapes. When she led them to the storage closet where the tapes were normally kept, however, all of them had suddenly gone missing. Investigators noted that a vent in the wall appeared to have been used to hide a video camera for surreptitious filming. A witness who had been taken to Fox Hollow Farm by Earth, and whose tips had led to the initial questioning of the Baumeisters, reported seeing a closet filled with professional video equipment, including cameras, lenses, tripods, and lighting equipment. No such equipment was found during the search. Police seized only ten items from the house, five of those items were videotapes. Two days after the search of the property began, Julie Baumeister obtained an emergency order for temporary custody of her son, Eric. Officers were dispatched to the lake house where Herb was staying and the child was brought back. Despite the fact that authorities had already spent two full days excavating Baumeister's 18-acre graveyard, he was not questioned about the discoveries on his property. As soon as the officers left with Eric, Herb promptly disappeared, which did not seem to concern police investigators. Over the next few days, searchers discovered a drainage ditch on the property that contained an abundance of large bones, but still no skulls. Wisman still insisted that there was not enough evidence to issue a warrant for Baumeister's arrest. On July 2nd, a Canadian police officer found Herb sleeping in his car near Ontario Park. The officer observed a number of items in the car, including an overnight bag, envelopes, newspapers, piles of other, unidentified papers, and what appeared to be videotapes. The next day, police again found Herb. This time he was in the park by the water's edge, with a 357 magnum bullet hole in his head. His car had been emptied of all personal items. A search of the area yielded no evidence that Herb had disposed of any of the items that had been in his possession just the night before. None of his possessions were ever recovered or accounted for. What was said to be a suicide note was found. It was addressed, rather bizarrely, attention Canadian authorities. Around that same time, Baumeister's older brother Brad was found floating in a hot tub in Texas. Brad's death remains an unsolved mystery. Perhaps the Baumeister family just had a run of bad luck. The day after Herb Baumeister's body was discovered in a park, it was autopsied by Canadian authorities, who promptly announced that the autopsy report would not be ready for release for about a year. Since some of the I-70 murders remained unsolved, Indianapolis officials were under intense pressure to investigate any possible connections to the Baumeister case. Police had two key pieces of physical evidence that had been gathered from the scenes of the unsolved killings, a semen sample and a palm print. The semen sample, however, just sort of disappeared. With only the palm print remaining, a technician was duly dispatched to obtain a print from Herb's corpse, still in the custody of Canadian officials. What followed, purportedly, was a ridiculous series of errors. The technician purportedly returned from Canada with a print that was unusable. 
The official story holds that the print simply didn't take, but it was never explained why the technician got all the way back to the States before realizing that. He was sent back to try again, and once again returned with a print that didn't take. Not to be deterred, the technician was sent back a third time, only to find that the corpse had been cremated, destroying the last chance that authorities had to definitively tie Erb to the I-70 murders with hard physical evidence. Why officials would have repeatedly sent the same obviously incompetent technician has never been explained. Through witness statements and circumstantial evidence, however, Baumeister was ultimately tied to at least one of the I-70 victims. No one, needless to say, ever stood trial for the unsolved I-70 killings or for the mass murder that occurred at Fox Hollow Farm. Herb was posthumously declared solely responsible for the deaths of the four victims whose remains could be identified. All were local gay men who had been reported missing. They were just four of at least ten local men who had been reported missing after frequenting area gay bars over the previous three years. The police and the local press had consistently ignored and or downplayed the disappearances. The Herb Baumeister story would not be complete without the mention of a colorful character named Virgil Vandegrift, who played a prominent role in the Baumeister investigation. Vandegrift was a former sheriff turned private investigator. In the mid-1970s, he had been sent to the LAPD Academy for hypnosis training. His father reportedly dabbled in hypnosis as well. In 1977, not long after receiving that special training, Vandegrift worked on the case of Brett Kimberlin, the so-called Speedway bomber. The very same Brett Kimberlin resurfaced in 1988, claiming that he had been vice presidential nominee Dan Quayle's college drug supplier. Kimberlin was promptly put into solitary confinement and cut off from press access. Vandegrift was hired by the families of two of the missing victims, both of whom felt that the police were doing next to nothing to find their sons. In August 1994, the aforementioned witness who survived a visit to Herb's house first talked to Vandegrift. He described Fox Hollow Farm and the strange man who had taken him there. One of Vandegrift's associates reportedly located Fox Hollow based on the man's description. For unexplained reasons, the associate obtained aerial photographs of the property that he presented to the witness for identification. The witness, who of course had never seen the ranch from the air, was unable to ID the property from the photographs. As a result, there was a considerable delay in identifying Herb Baumeister as the prime suspect. Why Vandegrift's investigator did not present the witness with surveillance photos of the property from the perspective that he had actually viewed it is another of the lingering mysteries surrounding the Baumeister case. In November 1997, Vandegrift's secretary, Connie Pierce, who had worked closely with the witness in the Baumeister case, died suddenly at the age of 46. In the spring of that same year, bones were still being uncovered at Fox Hollow Farm. Chapter 17, Patsies and Assassins